Hello there, welcome to MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're talking about UFC Vegas 67 coming up on Saturday, 14th of January with a 4 p.m. Eastern start time. 12 total bouts on the card. No titles at stake, but we've got some names you're gonna recognize. Guys like Kelvin Gaslam, Damon Jackson, Dan Ige. Two women's fights on the card. Caitlin Vieira versus Raquel Pennington. And the first fight in the card will be Priscilla Cachoeira versus Jara Eubanks. We'll be the breakdown for each fight, one fight at a time. Give you some background information on each fighter. Some props you might think you might want to play. Uh, we've been off the air for a while, so for those who've been waiting for us to jump back on, we appreciate your patience. We've got a lot of new things rolling out over the upcoming weeks. We talk about those things, but uh, for now, let's jump into this full card. Before I get into that, actually, do not forget to like and subscribe. Your support is what makes this possible. Let's jump into it, guys. going to be a women's bout, the first of two women's bouts in this card, Bantamweight, 135 pounds, between the American Sajara Eubanks versus the Brazilian fighter Priscilla Cachoeira. Cachoeira goes by Zombie Girl, and if you've ever watched her fight, it makes some sense. She's not very fleet of foot, she just kind of walks you down very flat-footed, hands are a little bit low, and she just wants to, you know, slug it with you. It's exciting, she's had some exciting fights recently, um, but there's some downsides of that as we'll talk about. Now, let's first of all get this out of the way. If you're going to bet in this fight, we're taking Sajara Eubanks by decision, but with very low confidence. We'll talk about some of the props we like here. Ultimately, you don't want a lot of exposure to this fight because however it pans out, you're going to look at it and say, well, that probably could have happened. Whether that's Cachoeira by a close decision, Eubanks gassing out. They're very inconsistent fighters as we're going to talk about, so I would advise low exposure here. All right, let's talk here about these fighters. So Cachoeira is 12 and four overall versus seven and seven, Yajar Eubanks. Cachoeira is 34, Sajara is 37. So they're both in those mid thirties, similar wheelhouse. Now height wise, Cachoeira is supposed to have about three inches here according to Tapology at five foot seven compared to five foot four for Eubanks. And in terms of gyms, Cachoeira trains out of MA Masters. And going here to my notes, I believe Eubanks trains out of um, a gym in New Jersey. Let's get my mind here. That would be Nick Katona MMA. So I, I believe she's still training there. Though I've seen some film of her training out in Colorado at the Elevation Fight Team with some of those ladies out there. Anyway, nonetheless, they're both training at very good gyms. Let's talk here first about Priscilla Cachoeira. Orthodox fighter from Brazil, uh, a boxing stance. She's not much of a kicker, not much of a grappler. And if you've watched her fight, she'll just stand and trade with you. She's a lot of faith in her power and in her chin. One of the big glaring issues I see with her is in the striking stats. She lands 4.68 strikes per minute, but absorbs 7.85. I'm not a mathematician, but that's a negative striking ratio, and it's not even close. She's got to assure up her defense if she wants to have, you know, a few more good years in this division. Because right now, if you just watch her on film for a few minutes, you notice the hands are a bit low. She's got this, how do I compare it to like maybe Davis and Figueredo a little bit, flat-footed, a bit intimidating, but again, the hands are low, and it shows in the numbers. She's only averaging about a quarter of a takedown per fight, not much of a wrestler. Her defense for defensive wrestling, not bad, 65%. Her average fight time is about nine minutes. So she's pretty much getting you into about late round two into round three. If she can't hurt her opponent enough to put him out with her power, the fight goes to the scorecards. At that point, if you're holding a Priscilla Cachoeira, you know, ticket, what you're hoping for in the course of three rounds is that she's going to land the more significant strikes, right? She may be getting hit more according to her, you know, fight stats, but at least landing the harder strikes. Some background information on Priscilla Cachoeira. And if you need to fast forward, we do have timestamps down below. So again, we're on to draw Eubanks by decision. At the end of this breakdown here, we'll talk about the props we like. But background information here on Priscilla Cachoeira. 
born in Brazil, had a bit of a troubled childhood. Her dad kind of was like, didn't recognize her as, as his daughter. And then she got molested by a married family member. So basically, I think it was her brother-in-law molested her, ends up being a drug addict, living on the street, uh, addicted to crack cocaine. Her mom steps in the picture, gets her, you know, reeled in, gets her, you know, sober. Uh, she has a 10-year-old son. She gets herself, you know, back on track, but then comes across some domestic violence issues, has a girlfriend. I guess now she's, uh, even though she has a son, I believe now she's openly gay. Anyway, that partner of hers uh, gets into some, some financial dispute with her. That ends up being another low point in her life. So she's been through a lot. I want to paint the picture here on Priscilla Cashware. She comes from humble beginnings, and she's been through a lot of shit. And the way she fights, quite honestly, it's that ship is on the shoulder. You can sort of sense that. Now, her last few opponents, she fought Aaron Lipsky. She won that fight, round one, KO, last year as a plus 175 underdog. Her prior fight... It was a war. Her and Ji Young Kim just stood toe-to-toe. One of the best female fights you're going to see, period. I mean, toe-to-toe, good boxing. Ji Young Kim got nice boxing. Cash Aware was cracking her. There was some blood involved. She wins that fight by decision. Again, as a slight dog, plus 135 underdog. Her prior fight before that was Jillian Robertson. She loses that fight by, dis- by I'm sorry, submission in round one. Again, as a dog here, plus 270. It wasn't the worst look. You know, Jillian Robertson, say what you want to say about her, but if she can get you in the ground, that's her wheelhouse. I believe she just messed up uh, Rose Namunis the other day in a grappling match, right? And then before that, Gina Mazzani. I mean, Gina Mazzani, we've, you know, seen the best of her, but she was a plus 190 underdog in that fight. I mean, um, our girl here, Cash Ware, plus 190 underdog, and she won that fight round two TKO. What am I getting at here? In her last four fights, she's been an underdog, and she's three and four in that, that stretch. So, the books have not really pinned her down accurately, and that would concern me in this fight because he's a slight favorite. So the books have been off on her. Could they be off again? Now, what's the like about Priscilla Cashaware? Punching power, it's there. Three of her four wins in the UFC have been by TKO. She's on a bit of a hot streak. She's four in one of her last five fights. You like the forward pressure. She's not going to leave you at the end of the night with a ticket where you're like, oh, why didn't she try to fight? No, she's going to fight. She'll fight for your dollar. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. Now, what are the concerns about her? The quality of wins. So she's four in one of her last five fights, but who are the wins over? Lipsky, Ji Young Kim, Mazzani, Dobson. You know, you could make an argument that those are very average to below average fighters in this division. Her submission defense, not great. She's been submitted twice. So that's an area for a game where if she's fighting someone like a Julian Robertson, they'll expose her. Will that be the case in this fight? You know, Sajara Eubanks is known as a grappler and a wrestler, but her submission offense is, is just not there, as we'll talk about. Other concerns I have here for Cashier, she's a 500-level fighter in the UFC, 4-4. Four and four. Now, granted, she's hot recently, but being 4-4 four and four in the UFC, it's like, you know, the coach, coach Green from the NFL once said, you are what your record says you are. We kind of see that with her. Negative striking ratio, we highlighted that before, um, has to show up her stand-up defense. In, in terms of this fight for Sajar Eubanks, am I worried about her getting outstriked in the feet? Not really. Sajar Eubanks is going to be looking more to grapple with her. As for Sajar, let's talk about her. 37 years old, so just a few years older than her opponent, out of the United States, trains at a Nick Tone MMA, also an orthodox fighter. So both fighters are fighting with a right-handed stance. And for Sajar Eubanks, her style is a wrestler. She's a wrestler, a grappler. She's fought about 18 total combat fights between MMA, boxing, amateur, the whole deal. Her fights tend to go 13 and a half minutes. And that tells you right there, her fights tend to go longer. She tends to go in the round five. That's her path to whatever she's trying to do, right? She lands 4.30 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.43. Positive striking ratio, not a ton of output, but you like the fact that she's at least on the positive side. 
She's averaging just about two takedowns per fight. That's key here. That's going to be her path to victory, no doubt about it. She's going to have to at least take down Cashewara in maybe two of the three rounds and take her, take her down, hold her down for at least a little bit, get some ground and pound. And for takedown defense, Eubanks is at 66%. Now, looking back at the biography of Eubanks, from Massachusetts, went to Morgan State University, has a college education, started BJJ 2008. She competed in Nogi uh, BJJ Championship tournaments, has an IBJJF World Championship belt in the Brown Belt Division 2014. Um, so she's got a lot of accomplishments on the mat. Again, we'll talk about it in a second. She doesn't have any submission wins though in the UFC. So it's like, you know, how do you how do you measure that? She's got credentials. She's done well in competitions, but you know. Um, so anyway, back to her details here. She was on Ultimate Fighter 2017. Very, very cool. And if you go back and look at those episodes on ESPN Plus, it is interesting. It gives you a background, more of a personal touch of how these fighters are out of the cage, how they act, how they behave. In that show, I will say, she had a problem with weight cut. And um, it sort of followed her also into the UFC. It's always been an ongoing issue with her. And one more detail, she also had a domestic violence issue with a female partner. So both these fighters are part of the LBGTQA community. Go pride, uh, all love and peace to everybody. Nonetheless, she had a domestic dispute with her partner or something about their child was there and in the presence of them maybe getting a little bit violent. Uh, the charges were dropped, but anyway, these ladies both have that in common. Now her last few opponents, she fought Melissa Gatto, that was last year, round three KO loss. She was a slight favorite, minus 165, excuse me. Not a big favorite, but a slight favorite. Her prior fight, a round one KO win over Elise Reed. She was a minus 360 favorite, and she took Reed down and just mauled her, beat her up. And that was the best looking version of Sajari Banks. That's a version you want to see. That's the one you're, you're betting on here if you like her by decision or some kind of ground and pound victory. Her prior fight, Pani Kianzad, decision loss. Not a great loss there. She was a minus 145 favorite. And then before that fight, Caitlin Vieira. 2020 decision loss, and I guess that loss has aged well because Vieira's looking good, but she was a plus 150 underdog in that matchup. So what's the like about Eubanks? What does she do well? She wrestles you. She's pretty strong. I mean, you can look at her physique. She'll be shorter and stockier. That's what she does. That's what her background's in. So for her, the wrestling, it checks. You know, that's, that's part of her arsenal. She'll do that. She's flashed some moments of finishing ability. It's been up and down. It hasn't been consistent, but she does have three TKO wins in, uh, in her career. Her ground and pound is maybe one of the second best parts of her game. So wrestling, number one, getting position, that's good. But the ground and pound experience, she can be dangerous there. She can use some elbows, pressure, you know, keep her opponent down, more or less like Khabib them, wear them out, you know. Now, what are my concerns for her? Number one, inconsistent. She's seven and seven, uh, and that's for a reason. You know, she's never actually won more than two fights in a row in her entire career. Now, 14 total fights, not a big amount of fights. But the point is, it tells you she'll win two fights, She'll drop the next one. She'll win one. She'll drop the next one. And that's just been sort of the, you know, her career in a summary. She had a bad loss, 2019, a loss against Carrera as a minus 310 favorite. And you go back to that fight. I think that was Betch Carrera's maybe her last win in the UFC. She was at the tail end of her career. In that fight, Eubanks comes in as a minus 310 favorite and drops the ball, loses by decision, has issues with cardio. It's another issue we have with her in the past. Issues with cardio, issues with weight cuts. If you, if you combine those areas where it's like a weight cut is a problem and cardio has been a problem, all you need is a little bit of a weight cut issue. You're going to have a cardio issue and so on and so on. Her activity level's not been great. It surprised me when I looked at her stats here. She did not fight at all in 2022. So that's a little bit awkward. Not sure why. Was there an injury? I didn't really look more into it, but she did not fight at all last year. She's fighting now early this year. Maybe she'll fight again this year, but didn't fight at all last year. She's one in three in her last four fights. You know, not a great look. 
She's getting older, 37. Could we be seeing signs of, you know, her having a harder weight cut now? She's getting older, metabolism slowing down, you know. So the, a lot of things are stacked up against Eubanks in this matchup. But the long and short of it is, Priscilla Cashaware, her path to victory is to crack Eubanks, you know, get the more powerful punches on the feet. In doing so, she'll be off balance. That's where I believe Eubanks catches her by the hips, brings her down, keeps her down for at least two of the three rounds, gets an ugly close decisions. The props I like for this fight the most, the fight going the distance, the fight going over two and a half rounds, and the fight starting round three. I'm not sure what books you use, but if you're using DraftKings, for example, fight starting round three, one of my favorite props to mess with, because if you have a fight where at least 10 minutes, you're gonna have some action, but you're suspecting some kind of finish, that round three prop, starting or not starting, something that we like to hit a lot. So again, we like the over two and a half, fight going to the full decision, and the round three prop, if it's reasonable, depending on what book you have. But we're right back to you. Again, you banks by decision. That's the pick. That's what we like here. Um, and one last thought again on this fight is just to be very careful with placing anything substantial. This is the first fight in the card. <laughs> you don't want to burn yourself early on in the card. And ultimately, you have two fighters where you can't count either one. If I was going to bet anywhere here, the bet would simply be on the distance props, like over two and a half or the fight starting round three. This way, no matter what happens on who wins the fight, you're not exposed on the money line because ultimately this fight has the scorecards most likely. And then it's all about perception. You know, how does one referee see it? Do they you know, value the control time in the ground? Do they value the bigger strikes by Priscilla Cachoeira? You could very well see a split here. And by the way, the split decisions, I love them. Those props are always like plus 1,000 on each side. I sprinkle them every now and then myself. So I'd recommend you doing that for this fight because it's likely to go to a decision, likely to be close. So that's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Okay, moving up the card. Next fight's going to be a flyweight battle. 125 pounds between Charles Johnson and Jimmy Flick, both American fighters. I'll give you the pick real quick here for the people that need to move on and get moving through the video. We get it. We like Charles Johnson to witness at the distance. Now, we would say the KO prop might be more attractive between the KO prop or submission prop, but you look back at his topology, he's had finishes in both avenues. And with Jimmy Flick, he'll be looking to grapple and wrestle, which might mean some opportunities there for Charles Johnson to submit him. But anyway, like Charles Johnson's at the distance, we like that prop. We'll get back to the particulars here in these two fighters. So for Jimmy Flick, 16 and five overall, four more in his last five fights, a big dog here, like plus 300 range, which quite frankly is not warranted. I like Charles Johnson. We like him. We'll talk about why we like him. But, you know, Jimmy Flick has a path to victory. He's got submission ability, as we're going to talk about. So this money line here is not one you could do too much with besides maybe parlaying Charles Johnson. But even that, I wouldn't parlay him with too much confidence because Jimmy Flick, again, he has a path to victory. They're both 32 years old. Flick is five foot seven. Charles Johnson's five foot nine. So a two inch reach advantage. I'm sorry, two inch height advantage there for Charles Johnson. I don't think that's a big deal. They both have the same reach, 70 inches. This fight probably plays out like 40% on the feet and then 60% like on the cage and on the ground. So some grappling on the on the cage and the ground, the rest of it on the feet. At range, Charles Johnson's gonna be the better striker. He'll have the advantages there. But again, size-wise, I don't think there's much of an advantage either way. Now, where have they trained? Charles Johnson's trained out of Tiger Muay Thai, also St. Charles MMA, Murcielago MMA. Good gyms, good experience, good partners. As for Jimmy Flick, he's out of Forza Combat Sports. Looking here at the background of these two fighters, let's talk first about Mr. Charles Johnson, the American fighter. So he's a kickboxer. That's his style. He'll use both stances. He'll go left-handed stance, right-handed stance, which is always a little confusing for a person who's not experienced. And we'll talk about Jimmy Flick's experience. He's got good experience in the cage, but he's also been on the cage for a while, which is going to be a factor for him in this fight. Now, total combat sports fights between amateur, boxing, the whole deal for Charles Johnson, 22, 22. The guy's got a lot of experience. 
His striking stats on UFC.com, I'm not going to read them to you. They're a little bit skewed because he's only fought like one or two fights in the UFC. So we're not going to read those out to you, but they are available. Again, if you go to our Google Drive, that link's down below. All of our raw stats, our information, our raw breakdown notes are available there for you to peruse free of charge on our Google Drive. So Charles Johnson went 4-2 as an amateur, went pro 2016, former LFA champion before he came over to the UFC. He made his UFC debut last year as a replacement fighter. He went up against Mokayev. And that maybe he was a decision that he should probably look back on because even though you want to get to the UFC, I get it. He came into that fight as a big underdog and honestly had no chance to beat Mokayev. And Mokayev, he basically just served as Mokayev's you know, ragdoll. Sometimes I believe these guys, if they just take an extra year, like he, if he stayed in the LFA a little bit longer, right? He's got the belt, win a few more fights, you know, get a real opportunity to come into UFC and have a chance to win a fight as his first fight. That would have been better. But anyway, he came in, had no chance to win the fight. He lost against Mokayev. His last U opponents, he got a win over Zagas Magulov last year by split decision. That's a quality win. You know, Zagas, say what you want to say about the guy. He's always he's always up for game. He's going to be a tough opponent. In that fight, he was a minus 165 favorite. And that's, um, excuse me, I'm talking about Johnson. He was a slight favorite, slight favorite in that fight. His prior fight, Muhammad Mokayev, again, his UFC debut, plus 370 underdog, lost by decision. Getting just to the fact that he got to the scorecards, that in itself was impressive. Mokayev. Is pretty good at submitting people, pretty good at wrestling him. He was able to wrestle Charles Johnson in that fight. And so Charles Johnson has to be careful in this fight. Doesn't get taken advantage by another wrestler in Jimmy Flick. One more fight to talk about for him was his LFA title fight, Carlos Mota. He won that fight also last year, around 5K a win. No lines are available for that fight, so I couldn't tell you if he was a favorite or underdog. I thought he was a slight favorite in that fight. Nonetheless, he won that fight. So those are his last three fights to talk about. Now, what's the like here about Charles Johnson? What does he do well? He's a natural striker. When you watch him on film... His hands are fluid. It's not uh, robotic movements, throws combinations. And overall, the volume's pretty good. I do like his output. Has a nice lead jab from both sides. He's an exceptional athlete. That also, when you watch film of this guy, you notice right away, he quick twitch muscle. He can move, explosive. I mean, he does everything pretty well. He's a balanced fighter. People use that term all the time. But what I mean by this, he's a balanced fighter. He can fight in the feet. He's good on the ground. He's a decent grappler. Now, when I say good on the ground, I want to preface that against Mokayev, you know, he got exposed. So with that athleticism comes good footwork, multiple stances, and solid cardio. Now, what are my concerns for Charles Johnson? The grappling, you know, that's where it comes down to levels against a better grappler like Mokayev, got exposed. His take on defense is not amazing. You know, he's not a, he's not a wrestler by trade. That's not his background. He's more of a striker. So that's an area where he can shore up and get better, make some improvements in his wrestling. He's only 33 years old. He's got some time to actually make some improvements. His focus, I'm being now picky here. When I talk about focus, he has a tendency at time to do things in the octagon, to be flashy or or acute. I don't mean him being like disrespectful, but he'll do things, spinning things, some flying things. That can get your just one mistake. Next thing you know, the guy's got your back. If he gives up his back to Flick, Flick's going to try to go for some kind of submission and, and keep that back control, get his hooks in, maybe get it, you know, get a, get his legs around his hips. Next thing you know, tie up an entire round. So I have to be careful with his focus, doesn't lose his focus and do something silly to get himself exposed. And last thing is punching power, you know? He's got good volume, but he doesn't seem to have like knockout power. And that's not really like a big critique. I'm just putting it out there. When it comes to Charles Johnson, I'm not sure he's got knockout power. In this matchup, he may find the chin of Jimmy Flick, but he's just not known for his knockout power. Let's talk about Jimmy Flick. All right, 32 years old, also an American fighter, orthodox stance. He's a wrestler grappler. That's what he catches his check on. He's a wrestler grappler submission guy. 23 total combat sports fights between amateur, pro, the whole deal. 
he averages eight minutes and about 17 seconds per fight. So for him, it's about halfway, round and a half. He lands two strikes per minute, absorbs 2.30, a slightly negative striking ratio, but not a big deal. He's the kind of guy, again, he's grappling, he's wrestling. He's not a high striking output guy. As you can see, two strikes per minute, absorbing 2.30. He'll eat a few shots in the feet to get to where he wants to get to, against the cage, get some grappling going on, bring it to the ground. He's averaging 1.81 takedowns per 15 minutes or per fight and has 0% takedown defense. Now, that 0% takedown defense, I'm not sure that's because he's never been taken down or never been attempted to get taken down. I didn't look into that number. As for his background, let's talk about what's going on with Jimmy Flick. He's had a long layoff, okay? So at some point, he goes contender series, 2020. All right, a little story on Mr. Flick here. Let's talk about Mr. Flick. For the podcast listeners, if you're driving home, if you're on a, you know, maybe you're in an Uber, maybe you're on a train, on the bus. I hope you're having a good day. <laughs> this this is uh, meant to fill part of your day, some free content, help you get through UFC Vegas 67 and get some insight. Um, if you're at home, maybe you're having a glass of wine, maybe you're having a beer, maybe just sitting back, kind of slowing down the rest of your day and just unwinding. But uh, cheers to you. Hope the new year is treating you well. All right, on that note, so Mr. Flick, he went professional 2010, has a Muay Thai, has Muay Thai experience, ends up a contender series in 2020. So here we go. The opportunity presents himself 2020. He gets the contract. Also 2020, he makes his UFC debut, and he gets a win, a round one submission win over Cody Durden. So life is good, right? He then abruptly retires in 2020, steps away from the game, says, thank you, UFC. Thank you, Dana White. I'm good. He did an interview after that, talked about what happened. His father and his brother were struggling with substance abuse, and it became a point where it was like tearing apart the family and also tearing him apart mentally. So Jimmy Flick goes and dedicates his time to his family, helping them recover. I don't know the status of his father and his brother, what's going on with them. But that's why he retired. And that's going to bring up some other questions. Like, does he come back from this more mentally now in a good place? Because before he said, I stopped, he wasn't in a good place mentally. So is he grounded mentally? Is he okay? Is he going to have some ring rust? You know, a lot of questions there. So his last opponent, we talked about Cody Durden, got that win. Round one, submission, 2020, UFC debut. Uh, contender Series beat Nate Smith, 2020, round three, submission. So that's the extent of his competition, if you catch my drift. Now, what's to like about Jimmy Flick? He is a submission guru. 12 of his 16 career wins are by submission. That's 75%, if you're doing a quick math here. He's on a winning streak. He's won four of his last you know, five fights. And he's won, what, on a four-fight winning streak, all four in a row. And a matter of fact, all four of his last wins that he has in a row are by, guess what? Submission. He fought an LFA part of the UFC, which is also good. You like to have fighters who come to UFC with some kind of background in a reputable organization because guys who make UFC debuts who have like no background in anything beyond like LFA or like cage wars, they come in like from these regional promotions. You just don't know what you're going to get. At least for Jimmy Flick, he has fought some new competition leading up to the UFC. Now, what are my concerns? The long layoff, it's two plus years. And the bigger concern is durability. He's been finished in four of his five MA fights. So five total losses and four of them he got finished. Even more concerning than that is that the finishes are happening in the regional scene. So go back and look at the tapology here for Jimmy Flick. He's getting finished in the regional scene. You know, it just it just 
to me is a a clue that if at some point in this fight <laughs> Charles Johnson just taps that chin, we may have a problem. Houston, we may have a problem. And then on top of that, it's tied into that same concern is the survival skills. So if you're doing film study on Jimmy Flick and you watch him get hurt, the the the, the next part of the concern is that he can't do things to survive. And you know people who get hurt, they start grappling, they do Charles Oliveira shit, they're rolling on the ground, <laughs> whatever it takes, you know, flop around like a fish, do something to remain active enough that the ref doesn't stop the fight. Some guys are a little bit more tactical. They'll start some grappling. They'll get him to the ground. Whatever it takes, dude. In boxing, they, they'll hug him, right? Unfortunately for Jimmy Flick, when he gets his, his bell rung, the survival skills aren't there. I'm not saying he doesn't have those skills. I'm just saying, like, he got his bell rung. He, he can't sort of, you know, get through it. If he gets chin-checked here by our boy Charles Johnson, I believe that's what happens. I believe that's the road we go down. The props we like a lot for this fight are Jimmy Flick by submission. Johnson is at the distance, and the fight does not go the distance. I, I think if you're going to take the safest bet in this fight, the fight not going the distance or not going decision, I believe that prop was out already. Let me look it up for you guys. Give me one second. The fight not going to decision is minus 185. It's not available on DraftKings or Fatal just yet, but man, that is a that is a prop you're going to have to consider as a parlay piece. I mean, a matter of fact, you could take Charles Johnson at minus 375 minus 85 maybe minus 400 by the time the fight comes around as a parlay piece or that minus 185 to minus 200 range for the fight just simply not going to decision because either jimmy flick is a submission or charles johnson wears him out flick's going to come in here excited he's been out there for two years the nerves the whole deal it would be very surprising this fight goes the full distance so that's the breakdown guys again we like charles johnson inside the distance i want to hear from you guys what's your feedback do you guys like Jimmy Flick? Uh, the prop is not out yet for the prices on Jimmy Flick by the submission, but we're going to definitely play that. There's a, there's a, there's a path there. And it, we like to talk about paths to victory for underdogs. If you want to bet underdogs, the first question is, is there a realistic path to victory? And in the case of Jimmy Flick, there is a realistic path there because he's got that ability to submit somebody. And it's lethal, and it's legit, and it's a big part of his arsenal. So that's the breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Okay, next fight in the card is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between two American fighters, Daniel Argueta versus Isaac Dolgarian. For those of you who need to skip forward in the video and you got to keep it moving, we have the timestamps available. We're going to give you the pick right now, and then we'll get into this fight in a little more detail. We like Isaac Dolgarian to win the fight inside the distance. It's the first big underdog that we're going to talk about. Well, not big underdog. It's going to be the first significant dog we like on this card. So again, we like Isaac Dolgarian into the distance. Okay, let's talk about this fight in a little more detail. Mr. Argueta, who goes by the Determined, is 8-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. A significant fate in this matchup. He's actually sitting quite, uh, well, minus 190. So Argueta was around minus 300-ish at some point, I believe. Has come back down to reality at minus 190. There's probably money coming in for Isaac Dolgarian, obviously. We like Dolgarian. He's got a shot here. It's also his UFC debut. We'll talk about that. But again, so you got Argueta sitting at minus 190. And Dolgarian sitting at plus 160. All right. So for Argueta, he's 29 years old or 29 years young from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Five foot seven in height. And so is Isaac. For reach, we have 70 inches on Daniel Argueta. We don't have a reach number here on Isaac. As for the gyms they train at, Daniel trains out of Jackson Wink MMA and also UFC Jim Costa Mesa. And for Isaac Dolgarian, trains out of Glory MMA and Fitness, which uh, he doesn't do that now. Because if he was, he wouldn't be fighting this fight. Obviously, the whole drama there with what happened with them. Um, the coach. So I'm not sure where Isaac's training at. 
probably went it over to a gym with some of the guys who also left Gloria. I mean, they probably moved over together. Anyway, back to this breakdown. Let's talk about these two fighters in detail. For Argueta, he's a southpaw. He's a wrestler. So he wrestled in college a little bit. Um, his wrestling in the octagon is not so great. We'll talk about that. He's got 14 total combat sports fights. His striking numbers on UFC.com, a little skewed again because he's got limited fight experience in the UFC, like maybe one or two fights. So those numbers, I'm not going to read them off. They're not really reflective of, of who he is right now as a fighter. But if you want those numbers, again, go to our Google Drive. Those stats are all there. The individual breakdowns are in Word documents. You go to our Google Drive, the link's down below. You'll see the breakdowns in the raw format that we use here when we're breaking down the fights. Okay. Background on Daniel Argueta. Wrestled in high school, also in college, Division II level in college. I mean, All-American Division II. I could be wrong on that, but I definitely wrestled in college at Division II level. He went 3-1 as an amateur before going pro 2019. He fought in LFA, part of the UFC. He lost his first round match on the Tough Series, Ultimate Fighter, 2006, what year was that? It was season 29. I forgot what year it was. He made his UFC debut last year versus Damon Jackson. Tough fight, lost the fight, and he lost it more because of experience. Damon Jackson just rode him for three rounds, and ultimately he couldn't get him off his back. And that's where we talk about the wrestling. So for Argueta, he is a former college wrestler, but those wrestler guys, you know, they're not used to being on their back. They, they, they don't always transition that wrestling to the cage. And for him, he's going to have to get better in that area because he's got the credentials to wrestle. But when you watch him fight, you don't always see it. And especially against a, a more crafty veteran like Damon Jackson. Before Damon Jackson, he fought Diego Silva. He won that fight by split decision on the contender series as a minus 345 favorite. Not a great look. By the way, he was a plus 500 underdog against Damon Jackson. He wasn't supposed to win that fight. His prior fight, Marion Santos in 2022, a round three TKO win as a minus 270 favorite. Those are his last three fights in his tapology. Now, what's to like about Argueta? I don't want to be too critical of this guy. He's got some ability. The wrestling credentials are there. He competed for many years, high school, college. You know, you like that. He's had an athletic background for a long time. He's disciplined. His cardio looks great. Even against Damon Jackson, Damon Jackson was riding him for three rounds, but he was never tired. Argueta was fresh and plenty of energy at the end of the fight time. So the physical and mental experience of being an athlete for a long time, I don't take those things lightly. For the case of, of Argueta, he's got those things. Now, what's my concerns for Mr. Argueta? Well, take down defense. For a guy who's a college wrestler and has the background, if you actually watch him try to defend takedowns in the octagon, here's what happens. He'll throw a big punch, get off balance, and next thing you know, he's exposed. And so he needs to like be more disciplined about his takedown defense, be in a better position, not get himself out of position. His grappling, Damon Jackson made him look like a prototypical wrestler who had never grappled before. Now, Damon Jackson didn't submit him. So I do give Dan Argueta the fact that he defended, you know, submissions the entire time. He did it very well. But man, he couldn't get out of the body locks. Couldn't stop giving up his back. Uh, couldn't stop getting, you know, off balance. You know, so those are my concerns when we're talking about Argueta. And there's not, not big concerns. I will say this. Him as a favorite in this spot, at minus 125, yeah, I get it. Minus 150, totally okay. But we get to minus 190, like a two to one favorite or minus 300, makes no sense. You almost have to consider playing Isaac on the money line if the range of the price tag is, is in that range, okay? Now, as for Isaac Dalgarian, 26 years old, again, was training out of Gloria May Fitness with, with those guys over there. He's an orthodox fighter, so right-handed fighter. American, he's a grappler, nine total bouts, so not a lot of experience. For his background, 4-0 amateur career, went pro 2021. He fought all five of his pro fights in FAC, and this will mark his UFC debut. For UFC debutantes, excuse me, guys, got to water the palate here with some wine, of course. For UFC debutantes, it's just often they get out there, 
nervous, bright lights. They have a hard time, I guess, living up to the moment. And it's not because they're not prepared. It's just the whole bright lights, the whole thing. It's just, you know, it's nerve wracking. That has to be in the back of your mind if you're putting a bet behind Isaac. Can he fulfill the moment? Can he live up to the moment? Because reality is a lot of good fighters who go on to have good careers in UFC, they lose their UFC debut. So his prior opponent, he fought a guy named TJ Britton, round one KO win. Britton is 7-3 overall. Um, he did have a win in Bellator. So that was a quality win. Now, Britton is currently 0-2 in LFA, but that's a quality win his last opponent. He fought a guy named Ray Ostrander, round one submission win. Ray is 3-3. Three three. His prior opponent, Jesse Ebrich. Now, Ebrich is 3-6 overall. Then before that, Marcus Moody. Moody's 0-1 overall. And then before that, Sam Hernandez, who's 3-4 overall. I'm not going to bore you the numbers, but the bottom line is he has not been fighting very good competition. This will be a gigantic step up in competition. At the very least, we know Daniel Argueta belongs in the UFC right now. He's pretty durable. Good gas tank. You know, good cardio. Uh, for Mr. Dalgarian, we just don't know. He hasn't fought many people. Now, we've been hearing good things about him on the gram and, you know, good wrestling ability. I think former state champion. He's got some credentials himself, but he hasn't shared the cage yet with someone of the ability like Daniel Argueta. Now, what's the like about Dalgarian? He's got a nice winning streak. He's got nine wins in a row between his pro and amateur career. He's got a 100% finish rate. All nine of his wins between amateur and pro, he has finished his opponent. His volume is excellent. So he's going to break you down in one of two ways. He's going to knock you out, submit you, or just overrun you with volume and just in your face, pushing you back. The high output, I love that. You don't like betting on fighters where it's like output becomes an issue <laughs> or people just stare down at people looking for the perfect punch. He's not that kind of guy. Great output. Now, what are my concerns? We talked about it. The strength of schedule. The combined record of all five of his pro wins, or those five five opponents that he's fought in professional that he's got wins over, their combined record is 16 and 17. The numbers say what they are. Below 500 who's been fighting against. Also, it's a UFC debut. We mentioned it before. The bright lights, the nerves, the idea that the pressure's on you to make a good impression. And ultimately, what happens? Your heart rate gets up. You know, you, you don't sleep as well the night before. I mean, they've, they, a lot of fighters have talked about this, and it's okay. It's normal. This is a huge moment. It's going to be on television. At least for Argueta, he's been through this a little bit. He's kind of been through this, you know, emotional roller coaster. He's been on Contender Series, and this fight's being held in the Apex, which is also in the same exact arena, the same facility as Contender Series. So he's got, you know, a matter of fact, actually, for Argueta, he's done tough there, Ultimate Fighter. He's done Contender Series there, and now he'll be fighting there again. So he's very familiar with the, the confines of the Apex. Whereas with someone on the other side, like Dolgarian, this is all going to be brand new for him. So anyway, with all that said, we do like Dolgarian to win the fight into the distance. Okay. The props we like the most of this fight are the fight going under two and a half rounds and the fight not with the distance. I love the distance props. You know why? If Argueta finishes him, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, either way you're covered. With a fight like this, I'm going to be looking more to bet the distance props than choosing a side. But the plus money is nice there on Dolgarian. We'll be looking at it closer to the voice of fight time. Um, but we're going to go on Isaac Dahlgren into the distance. That's a prediction. That's the fight breakdown. Let me do you guys think. Who do you guys think win the fight? Do you think Argueta's got the experience advantage? Or do you think he comes out here and gets the wrestling going and gets down Isaac Dahlgren? Or does Dahlgren surprise some people? If you're online listening to the chats and stuff like that, people are talking a big game about Isaac Dahlgren. And that could be why the money lines moved a bit. People are starting to put money on Dahlgren. We like Dahlgren inside this sense. That's the breakdown. Let's move on. Alrighty, moving up the car, we've got a flyweight battle at 125 pounds between Carlos Hernandez, the American fighter, versus Alan Nascimento from Brazil. 
before I get into the breakdown, let me give you guys the pick and the method, right? We like Alan Nassimento to win by decision. That's our prediction. Again, Alan Nassimento to win by decision. He is the big favorite here at minus 390. You got Hernandez sitting around plus 320. That many line, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Even though we like Alan quite a bit, and we'll be parlaying him um, at some point. I just feel like, you know, Carlos Hernandez deserves a little more respect at 8-1, and for some reason, he's not getting any of it. But uh, we'll talk about that more as we break down this fight. As for the details, Alan Nascimento is 19-6 overall. He's 3-2 in his last five fights. He's out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, 31 years old. 5-8 in high weight, about a 70-inch reaching chains out of Chuto, Box, Diego Lima. As for Hernandez, 8-1 overall. 5-0 in his last five fights. Out of Illinois, 29 years old. Also 5'8", with a 67-inch reach, about two and two and a half inch reach disadvantage for him uh, compared to Alan Nascimento. He's out of VFS Academy. So both fighters are training at very good gyms, a lot of similarities, similar in age, and even similar in fight experience in terms of competition. Now, total fights overall, Alan Nascimento's fought some more opponents, obviously, with 25 total fights compared to only nine for Carlos Hernandez. Okay, my notes. Look at my notes here on these two fighters. So Mr. Alan Nascimento, orthodox fighter, he's a right-handed fighter. He averages... Oh, actually, we don't have an average fight time for him for some reason, but he does average 3.31 strikes per minute, absorbs 2.38 strikes per minute. So he's got a slightly positive striking ratio. He averages about one takedown per 15 minutes, and defense takedowns at only a 16% rate, so not great takedown defense. I mentioned before, he's from Brazil, born in Brazil, went professional 2011. He fought in Ryzen and on, on the Contender Series, part of the UFC. He lost his fight in contender series by a split decision to Ralph Ralion Paeva, who's also currently in the UFC. Excuse me. He made his UFC debut 2021, so about two years ago, where he won a split decision, or he lost by split decision to Tajir Ulanbekov. His last three opponents, he fought Jake Hadley last year, won that fight by decision as a plus 175 underdog. You like seeing that? His prior fight before that was against Tajir Ulanbekov. He lost that fight by split decision. And that was his UFC debut, and it was a split decision loss as a plus 310 underdog. Not a bad spot. Very, very close. And of course, he lost by split decision to Ralean Paeva in a contender series. What's to like about Nascimento? What does this young man do well? Well, number one, he trains with Charles Oliveira. And like when I say trains, like that's his main training partner. So you do like that. And of course, he has some submission ability. Now, you have a guy with good submission ability, already Brazilian, and training with one of the best submission fighters in the world so he's obviously got that in his arsenal he'll be trying to use that in this fight his experience 25 total fights compared to only nine for hernandez now they fought against similar levels of competition but could is a lot more cage time for him compared to his opponent split decisions all right so he has been on the wrong side of a split decision in two of his last four fights he had things worked out differently for him he could be on a little better of a streak so look split decisions are kind of funny one judge thinks you won two guys think you didn't win so it could be different for him. Like he could be on a different streak right now. He could be like three and two in his last five fights instead of where he's at, all right? He has a very high guard. His hands are up, very disciplined. I do like that. Some fighters, their style just lends them to have lower hands, not with Nascimento. His hands are up, very high, very disciplined. His grappling and wrestling, that's his technique. That's what he'll be doing. Obviously, good submission offense, but his grappling and wrestling is also very good. So if you can't get a submission, position control, eating up time, getting some ground and pound going on, at least looking for submission opportunities, taking the back of his opponent, those will all be part of his arsenal, part of his path to victory. Now, what are my concerns for Alan Nascimento? Limited finishing ability. Eight of his last 10 fights have gone to decision. So even though he's got submission ability, he's not finishing at a very high rate. Again, so eight of his last 10 fights have gone to decision. And a matter of fact, he lost by split decision twice in his last four fights, as we mentioned before. So he's got to be careful going to the scorecards. He shouldn't feel very confident going to the scorecards. 
a lack of activity. He's had three fights in the past five years. Now, granted, 2020, COVID, whatever else, but not a very active fighter. Again, three fights in the last five years. Submission over position. We all know what that phrase means. He is the kind of fighter who will do that. He will go chase a submission position. Not submission position. He will lose position to chase a submission, find himself now out of position trying to chase something that wasn't there. And so you don't love that. And he's also a bit one-dimensional. If he cannot get his grappling going, if he cannot get position control, if he cannot at least attempt some submissions, he's going to have a hard time on the feet. That will not be his game plan. Now, for Carlos Hernandez, he's more of a stand-up fighter. So that would be the way that Carlos Hernandez could you know, win some scores on the court, on scorecards, excuse me, is by keeping the fight on the feet and forcing uh, Nascimento to get out of his game plan. For Nascimento, he must be on the ground. So he's a little bit one-dimensional that way. Now, as for Carlos Hernandez, 29-year-old from VFS Academy, also orthodox. He's a right-handed fighter. So we don't have any southpaw stuff or nobody changing stances here. For Carlos Hernandez... He's from Illinois, played soccer in college, by the way. I love this little factoid about him. He's actually a college soccer player. And then after that, obviously moved over to mixed martial arts. He had a very lengthy amateur career. We talked about experience-wise, how he's fought similar competition. He went 13-2 and as an amateur. That's 15 more fights on top of the nine or so fights he's fought as a professional. So he's got a lot of experience that people don't usually see when he sees pro record. He has an amateur win over Charles Johnson. The Charles Johnson is also on this card. Quality amateur win. He went pro 2017 in Titan FC. He fought for HFC and LFA prior to the UFC. He won a split decision on Dana White Contender Series 2021, two years ago. And I don't know if he got signed from that. I'm not sure if he got signed from that fight. But nonetheless, that was how he got, a, got his look by the UFC. He made his UFC debut last year with another split decision win. And that was like, you win my split decision on Contender Series. And you win my split decision on your UFC debut. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're barely getting by you know, this, you know, your chinny chin chin type of thing. His last few opponents, Victor Altamirano, that's who he beat earlier last year, or la late last year, by a split decision. He was a minus 170 favorite in that fight. And then Daniel Barrez, that was the fight in contender series where he won as a plus 100 underdog. So, you know, in the case of Hernandez, you got to acknowledge the fact that he is kind of barely getting by. Um, you don't love it, but it is the reality. Now, what is two like? He's on an eight-fight winning streak. His submission offense, four of his eight wins are by submission. Excellent cardio. Boxing technique is good. You could tell he spends a lot of time in the bag. Everything is straight down the pipe. His hands come right back to his chin. Good head movement. If he had a little more power in his hands, man, the guy could be something special. The problem is it's a smaller division. The guys are lighter, and it doesn't seem to have the sting on the end of his punches. Now, what are my concerns for Hernandez? The split decision wins. The last two wins, he's won by split decision. He could very well be 0-2 in his last two fights and not even be in the UFC. Catch my drift? The punching power we just mentioned before. Good volume, punching power, not so much. And if I could say one more thing about his fighting style and, and, and sort of what would lend to him maybe not being successful in the UFC, he doesn't have a way of seizing the moment, okay? So, like, if you're a grappler, you get a key takedown at the end of a round, you get some position control, land a few ground and pounds, that could be, like, how you seize the moment. If you're a, a, a punching power type of guy, you're looking for that one big shot, uh, like a Yolo Romero type of guy, you're looking for that opportunity to seize the moment. How does Carlos Hernandez seize the moment? Like, what is he going to do? Like, just a, a little more volume, pitter-patter without a lot of power. Doesn't really have a takedown game. Doesn't really have an offense on the ground. So I worry for him if the fight gets, like, close, close round, or he's behind later in the fight. What will he do to change things up to seize the moment? So those are my concerns there for, for Mr. Hernandez. My last few notes of these two fighters here, the props I like. The props I like the most of this fight. The fight going over two and a half rounds. The fight starts round three, and Nascimento by decision. These two fighters have a tendency to go the full distance. 
they're both matched up to do that. I think, again, we're going to see a fight where they're going to both have their moments. Hernandez will have a few combinations on the, on the feet, look decent. Alan Nacevedo is not an amazing striker. I can see him getting hit a few times. But then Alan's going to find the opportunities to take the fight to the ground and grapple. He'll be the slightly more disciplined fight on the ground. He'll have an opportunity there to do some things. He may, get a, he may not get a submission, per se, but do enough to tie him up. And as for Hernandez, this would be a big win. If he can get this win here over a guy who's a little bit more of a veteran in the UFC, it would be huge. As for the price tag, so we're going we're gonna to parlay Alan Osimito. We'll talk about the parlays at the end of the videos. But be careful with this because Carlos Hernandez, who's been winning by split decision, could this also go to another split decision and get really greasy and ugly? Yeah, you kind of see that happening. Anyway, we're on Alan Osimito to win the fight by decision. We do have some confidence there. We'll be parlaying it. But uh, the props, I think I would look at more if you're going to play individual spots in this fight. So, for example, the fight should be going over two and a half rounds. I like that spot a lot. I would play that individually before I would even touch the money line at minus whatever, 340, minus 350, whatever the case may be. You're not going to want to put $400 up on Nascimento to win 100 bucks. That's just, that's crazy talk. That's not going to be the way you're going to win, win money. Um, if anything, put $100 on Carlos Hernandez because you hit that right there, <laughs> you know, you're talking some real money. That's the breakdown, guys. Let's move forward. Moving up the car, we've got a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between Matias Mendoza versus Javid Basharat. Javid Basharat goes by the Snow Leopard, and Mr. Mendoza goes by Bokau. All right, so before we get into this breakdown, I'll give you the pick and the method here. So we like Javid Basharat to win by decision, but we're going to tell you right now, we're not betting Javid Basharat, not as a parlay piece, not the money line. We're going to actually bet on Mendoza. Uh, I think Mendoza's got a shot here. I specifically like him by KO. It should be a pretty juicy prop when it does come out, but uh, the pick to win, if we had to choose who's going to win the fight, will be Javid Bashrat by decision. Okay. Look at these two details of these fighters. Let's talk here about these two. So again, Bantamweight bout, 135 pounds. you got Mr. Mendoza at 10-0, undefeated. He's a dog here at plus, uh, plus 290 range out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, about to be 24 years old, 5'6 in height with a 71.5 inch reach. He trains out of Chuto Box, Diego Lima. As for Mr. Javid Bashra, he's 13-0, also undefeated. Big favor here at minus 350 to minus 340, depending on what book you're using. He's out of Afghanistan, now by way of England, 27 years old, so a few years older, but still in his mid-20s. And he's 5'9", so a few inches longer and taller than Matias Mendoza. I'm sorry, I should say a few inches taller, but reach-wise, uh, Mendoza actually has about a 2.5-inch reach over Javid Bashra. And for Javid Bashra, he trains out of Extreme Couture. He's the brother of another Bashra who fought on contender series last year who's now also in the ufc so you got these two brothers from afghanistan by the way can i just flashback 2001 afghanistan's getting bombed um as we're you know searching for osama bin laden and their country is being you know turned into rubble um fast forward you know almost 20 some odd years later and uh, my, my goodness this is the best we could have expected we've got people coming out of afghanistan who've making their way to the ufc and you know becoming uh international you know fighters so pretty awesome shout out to afghanistan those people have you know been through a lot anyway let's talk about these two fighters here for javi bashrat he's a right-handed fighter he is a striker that's really where he catches his checks the kicking deep kicks a lot of volume he's got a conor mcgregor type of stance he's not conor mcgregor i don't want to misinterpret what i'm saying here where he'll grab his opponent's hand and kind of like stand there a little bit wide-legged and you know he's got a unique stance very confident in his striking he lands about 5.41 strikes per minute absorbs 2.42 you like the high output 
good ratio, a- averaging more than two to one in terms of his ratio for striking. He gets about 1.7 takedowns for 15 minutes. You like that with an 87% takedown defense. Now, it's a limited sample size, but still, those numbers are pretty good. Um, we mentioned before, younger brother, who's now also in the Dana White, also came through Dana White Contender Series, who's also in the UFC. His last three opponents, Tony Gravely, he fought him last year, won the fight by decision as a minus 165 favorite. He fought Trevin Jones before that, won that fight by decision as a minus 185 favorite. Then he also won a Contender Series against a guy named Oran Kolan as a minus 185 favorite. So he's been a favorite now. This will be his fourth fight in a row. All fights in UFC and it's also on contender series. That is also a point of concern because what ends up happening here, this number gets inflated. You see, it, well, I shouldn't say if he didn't. It's obviously, he's got these three wins in a row. He should be sitting more around like a minus 200, minus 250 favorite. But because he's got some hype, because he's undefeated, um, he's getting this extra rub. And so that's why the price line's a little bit high. But it doesn't warrant the price tag. It doesn't make any sense. Now, as for Javid, things I like about him, He's been often the favorite, and he's showed up, and he's won. So whether the books are exact on him as a favorite or not, that's questionable. But they've been having him as a favorite. He's come through. He's won as a favorite. You like that. He's a very talented striker. If you watch him on film, nice combinations, mixes in kicks, very fluid. His hands, you know, he lets his hands go. He doesn't have to overthink. His hands are natural. He's also on a hot streak. Obviously, 13-0, looking to go 14-0. He's on a very hot streak. His pace, that's where he distinguishes himself from the other fighters. He puts so much volume and pressure on his opponents. At some point, he either breaks them, they'll make a mistake, or he'll land something solid. So that'll be interesting to see if that works against Mendoza because Mendoza, he likes to come forward too. So at some point, something I have to give here. Now, what are my concerns for uh, Mr. Bashrat? The inflated line. I just mentioned it before. This line is almost a little bit of a trap. Okay, We tweeted out this week that you should be very careful with parlaying this spot. There's something about this spot, and I'm talking about the line being so blown up. This is almost like a tactic by the by the books. They want you to put your parlays here. They want this to be one of your legs. So they give you this like minus 350, minus 400 spot in a guy who is good. He is talented. And it's almost like it's candy. <laughs> you see it when you're looking at your list of bets to put in. You're like, all right, I want a good three-leg parlay or four-leg parlay. And you're like, man, this this Bosch Rock guy, undefeated, about to be 14 0, he's sitting at minus 345. You're going to have the propensity, the average person will more likely put that into their parlay, okay? Over like a minus, I don't know, 250 spot on a guy who's got just his likelihood to win just because they see that bigger price tag. So it's weird how the chalk works that way. <laughs> like the chalk confuses people and it gets them to want to throw these into parlays. I suspect, it's just me talking out loud, when the fight is all said and done, it, it won't look like minus 345. You see what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, I just, I don't think you want to touch this one. This this can come upside down really fast. And next thing you know, you're thinking about, wow, why did I put it in there? At minus 345, what was even the value I was getting? So, yeah, do not parlay it. Uh, it the value is not correct there. Um, my last two concerns here in Bashra, the high chin. I mentioned the way Conor McGregor fights. Look at Conor McGregor versus Khabib, for example. Conor's chin is up there. He's very confident in his, his abilities. He's confident in his head movement. His hands are out here reaching, doing stuff. You know, he's a manipulator with his hands. He's doing some, you know, doing different things. Uh, but just like Connor, for Jimmy Boshrod, his head's also very high too. Um, that, that's a problem. Against Mendoza, who's who's only shown us in a small, small sample size, he's got some striking ability. Um, you don't want to have your chin up there, you know. Um, and then last criticism for Boshrod, my last concern, I should say, not criticism. We haven't really seen him deal with adversity. And that's not really fair to criticize him because we don't know yet. 
but when you haven't seen a fighter have to recover or, or go through a fight where they're down the first two rounds and have to get a finish late in the fight, we don't know that side of him yet or how he responds if he gets hurt. Maybe he takes a few lower leg kicks and he has to limp around the rest of the fight and deal with a lower leg injury. We just don't know. Up in the air. All right, let's talk about the Brazilian, uh, Matias Mendoza. Pronounced Mendoza. It looks like Mendonca, uh, but I heard him announce in some fights before. It's actually Mendoza or Mendoza. Anyway, from Brazil, very young, 23 years old, out of Shudo Boxe Lima, Diego Lima, excuse me, also an Orthodox fighter. His first fight, what, Contender Series, his last fight <laughs> lasted 48 seconds. Didn't really show us much other than the fact that he's got, you know, got a, you know, a few good punching, got some punching power, but the opponent was Ashik Ajim is his name. <laughs> yeah, the guy didn't look like very much. He's a guy who's, I mean, what, he's got a, a just above a 500 record. Didn't look impressive. And in that fight, uh, Mendoza was a minus 325 favorite. So he's expected to win. He won that fight easily. That's how he got his contract. And now he's making his UFC debut in this matchup. He has some prior opponents, Pedro Nobre and Victor Nato. Um, those fights are available online. That's a future MMA 12, lower level promotions. It, it's, it's hard to really grasp what this kid's capable of before I even go any further. He looks amazing in that little clip on Dana White Contender Series when he first fought. But you just, the competition was so low. And, and that's to be expected. On Dana White Contender Series, you have guys who are, are all kind of levels. And sometimes some of those fighters are just very low level. They got to fill the they gotta fill the roster, right? So it doesn't tell us much. He just looked amazing, athletic, and he just overran this guy. Now, what's to like about him? He had the exciting one on Contender Series. He's the kind of guy where he's a bit marketable, like dyeing his hair different colors and stuff like that. And he's got a great physique, very passionate. He 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 came off as the kind of guy where if he can get a few wins in a row, he could be a personality, put it that way. A very quick jab, forward pressure, very athletic. This guy would probably do a backflip after he wins type of thing, like shredded, high muscle twitch. You know, he's got all those things you're looking for. We just don't know the other side. Like, we haven't seen him fight anyone. We, you know, he had a long layoff. He had a two-year layoff between his last two fights. Um, the competition's questionable at best. This will be a big step up in competition. What we know about Javid Bashrat, because we've seen him fight now a few fights in the UFC. We know that he belongs. There's no question. We know that he's got pretty good stand-up defensive skills. We know his striking is right up there with guys in this division. We know that about to be 14-0, he's going to be wrecking with in the near future um we also know he's from afghanistan we talked about before like you know that's a whole nother market that the united states uh, united states ufc doesn't mind tapping into there's a lot of pluses there how does mendoza pull this off i think what ends up happening here and this is just my two cents here as i put a little bow on this fight i think that javid probably wins the fight over the course of three rounds with striking that's why we predicted by decision that makes sense the price tag makes no sense. Don't want to touch anyway. You're not going to put up 400 bucks or whatever. That range to win 100 bucks. Not going to do it. Right? You shouldn't do it. But here's the thing. What if the high chin, we, we, we recognize that it's there. What if the high chin, the ability to get hit is there? And Mendoza, what if he does have legit power? We, we've seen him start someone that was like, yeah, whatever, low level guy. Pretty fast though. First round. He looks ripped. He looks strong. Um, we don't want to get too distracted by this, but I think the play... The play is Mendoza into the distance. That's the prop you want to look at. It's not out just yet. That's the spot we're going to play. Um, other props we'll consider for this fight are the over one and a half rounds and the fight starts round three. So the thinking on that is if, if we get into round two, right? Because now round two tells us that Mendoza didn't have that power from his last fight. Didn't He didn't, he didn't basically chin check um, 
Bosch right in round one. So we get to round two. Now we find out what's the cardio like for both fighters. Um, does Mendoza have a plan B? Meaning, like, if he can't hurt Bashrat with his punches, is he is he keeping up with the volume of Bashrat? We know what Bashrat does. We've seen him do it. He has volume. He'll keep going for the course of three rounds. So the longer this fight goes, I think it favors Bashrat. The shorter the fight goes, like an early f- finish of some kind, I think that's going to be Mendoza surprising some people. Um, so, again, the fight going over a round and a half, the fight starting around three, I like those spots. But Mendoza into the distance, look at that prop when it comes out. It's going to be pretty juicy. There's upset written all over this. And again, the, the warning we're going to talk about, we, we, uh, <laughs> we'll be talking more about these risk spots or these high-risk spots you want to be careful of. This is one of them. If you parlay Javi Bashrat and somehow this falls apart at the end of the night, it's, it's not going to be this video is going to go back and look, oh, you know, MMA Fight Club called this out. Like, no, this is this is clearly an opportunity where the, the ball could be dropped. It would not be surprising at all if this Brazilian fighter Mendoza is maybe more legit than people think. He's training a very good gym, got some very good partners. He looked pretty nasty in that short bit of film we saw on him. And Javi Bashrat is game. He's willing to fight, you know, so we could see a whole lot of violence here. Next thing you know, someone gets clipped and maybe it's Bashrat getting clipped. Anyway, with that said, guys, we like Javi Bashrat in the everything goes normal world and there's no bumps in the road and everything's, you know, if it goes as planned, Javi Bashrat probably wins by decision. But, uh, you know, it doesn't always go as planned. <laughs> so the outside chance there for Mendoza winning by inside the distance is a prop you want to look at, you want to play. And uh, that's the breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Moving up the card, here we got a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between the Polish fighter Mutez Rubeski. Pronounced Rubeski. Looks like Rubeski, but it's Rubeski. He's up against Nick Fior. Nick Fior is an American fighter. Now, Mr. Fior comes in as a replacement. Rubeski is supposed to fight someone else. Omar Morales, right? Omar had to back out. Injury. In comes in Nick Fior making his UFC debut. All right, those are some of the general circumstances. Before I get into the breakdown any further, let me give you who I like to win. In the method. We'd like Rebecca to win the fight into the distance. I do want to make sure I'm clear though that there's got to be some consideration for Nick Fior by submission. That prop, you absolutely must play it. You absolutely must consider playing it. I'm going to try to convince you of why that's a prop you want to consider. But um, the Polish, you know, sensation here, Mr. Rubeski probably comes in and win. Now, the money line has grown to a minus 660 range for Mutez Rubeski. Rubeski, you can't really touch this now. I would highly caution you from parlaying it you know what value are you really getting if you want action in this fight the props are there for you like the fight not going the full distance or the fight going under two and a half rounds um or rebeski or rebecky just inside the distance there's some props that are available give you much better payout than this minus 660 price tag and quite frankly rebeski is making his ufc debut <laughs> you know so it's like damn dude like i know he looked good at contender series and he kind of mauled the guy he was up against um but he's fighting a guy who's good at submissions, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So let's go here to the, the basics. Let's talk about the basics of these two fighters. So Mr. Fior, undefeated 6-0, out of New Hampshire, Northeast guy, 25 years old, 5'11". No reach number on him. He trains out of New England cartel, like the Mexican cartel. Mr. Rubeski, I'm sorry, Rubeski, I just pronounced it correctly. Polish fighter, 16-1 overall, very impressive. Also in a hot streak, 5-0 in his last five fights. A big favorite, as we mentioned before, out of Poland, 30 years old. So about five years older. And he's got that, like, you know, uh, 30, 35 year old hairline, too. Uh, five foot seven. So four inches shorter. But that's his milieu. 
Rebecca is always a little bit Rebecca Rubeski. Rubeski's always a little bit shorter. He deals with it because he always he always, always got shorter arms too. It's part of his thing. He'll close distance, wrestle the guy he's up against, you know, snatch him to the ground. Like it's like a Dagestani type of fighter, you know. So he doesn't he doesn't have any problems with the fact that he's got shorter arms or a shorter you know height. For Nick Fior, the height and reach advantage will play out in a different part, which we'll talk about. And for Matez Rebecca, he trades out of Berkshire's team, which I believe is a gym over in in uh, somewhere in Europe, right? Um, Poland, to be exact. Yeah, and they actually have a, a bunch of fighters there. So if he's actually still training there, so he's got listed on Tapology, it is a very good gym. Looking at the numbers in these two fighters. So for Rebecca, uh, he fought an FEN prior to the UFC. He got his contract last year with a round one submission, went on contender series. Uh, it was over Rodrigo Lidio, and um, Mr. Lidio was coming in as a pretty significant dog because you had Rebecki in there as a minus 230 favorite. Now, in that matchup, I wanted to note it again, the height and reach, right? So in that matchup against tennis series, his opponent there, Lidio, had an 8-inch reach advantage over him. <laughs> but it didn't matter because Rebecki just came and hooked a pit bull, closed distance, took him to the ground. I will say, in the process of taking down that opponent, he did eat like a knee and a kick and... Showed a very good chin, but anyway, yeah, he did a good job getting him to fight to the ground. Um, he also fought a guy named, oh, that's a tough name, Azepian. That was also last year. He had a round five decision win. He was a minus 400 favorite, and that's a common theme now. So, like, his last three fights, he's been a minus 400 favorite, minus 230 favorite, now a minus, like, 600 favorite. Probably he's, like, a minus 700 favorite by the time the fight kicks off, right? That's concerning because, like, it's like a bubble. The market, you know, like when you have the, the housing market, it goes up, 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 and next thing you know, there's like a little bit of a decline, like a bubble burst. And so for him, like these huge inflated lines at some point, you know, if you're looking to take advantage of some spots, we're going to talk here about why there's an opportunity for Fior, and he shouldn't be just completely overlooked. I get why people are betting on Rubeski. I get it. I even get why people are parlaying. I, I get it. I'm just saying we're just talking numbers here, not even capability. Um, it is a fight. You know, what if Rubeski comes in there and just suffers a small little injury? There's a big price tag here to be had. And if there's any way we could rationalize a, a bet on Fior, it's got to be thought. I mean, it's got to be considered. Excuse me. All right. So what are the things I like here about Rubeski? Uh, finish rate. Only been a decision twice in 17 career fights. He's got eight KO finishes and six submission finishes. For him, familiar territory. He was on contender series last year. He fought in the same exact arena, same exact octagon, the smaller cage in the apex. So for him, this is more familiar. His opponent's coming in here. First UFC debut, never fought in contender series, yada, yada, yada. The pressure and pace. If you're fighting against Rubeski, you're going to have to have excellent takedown defense, phenomenal cardio, um, and some grappling defense. The guy's going to come at you. He's got forward pressure. He's going to eat some shots to get into your, into your hips, into your body. And if you can't deal with that pressure and pace, if you don't have good cardio, he's going to destroy you. Um, he displayed a really good chin. I mentioned before in that last fight on the contender series, he took a knee like to the face. Or, I mean, he took a kick to the head, then took like a knee to the chin on the way into getting his opponent. And you can hear the announcer was like, oh, man, he just ate a few shots. Um, he's got a chin. He's got a chin. And then, of course, the conditioning. He's he's built to last three full rounds of, of ripping his opponent apart and bringing him down. Now, what are my concerns for Rubeski? Well, Look, the reality is this is also his debut, okay? He has not fought UFC caliber fighters yet. When you put people in octagons and one fighter has a lot higher you know, skill set than the other one, it shows. So Rubeski may have just had a much higher skill set than the opponent he had on the contender series. We're going to find out a lot more now about him um, coming to this fight. Well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. We're going to find out against another guy who's not even UFC potential yet. We don't even know. 
Um, but a guy coming in here, the point is he's making his UFC debut as well. Okay, so he's not necessarily a proven fighter. And to have someone at a minus 660, minus 700 range, kind of odd for someone who's making their debut. The wide striking technique he uses or lack thereof. So he's doing that typical wrestlers do this, right? So people that have a wrestling background, they get into the striking after college or later on in life. And so they lack maybe the technique. Their hands aren't as fluid. Things start to get a little loopy, drop the head, overhand rights, you know, that kind of thing. He does that. That's how he strikes. He doesn't mind eating a few shots. Now, it's just a matter of time, though, right? If he fights the wrong person, his head's out there for maybe a guillotine, or maybe he's going to eat an uppercut, or maybe a, a heavy knee that's going to change things up in the fight. So there, there is that window there where he's doing these wide strikes and leaves himself open for all kind of counters. Also counter takedowns if, obviously, his opponent here tries to get him down. His defense, um, he doesn't really have really good you know, stand-up defense. He's so wide open with his punches that, again, he's open for the counters. And then when he's setting up his strikes, you can see it coming. You see the way he moves his feet, the way he drops his head, the way he drops his shoulders. Everything is big, gigantic movements. There's no quick little strikes. There's no little you know, jabs. There's no combinations with him. His combinations are move his feet, big overhand right. He's also a bit one-dimensional. And, and this needs to be stated. Imagine if, imagine if two of the three rounds of this fight end up being played out somehow for the most part on the feet. Imagine if, you know, this, this fighter here has got some defensive abilities, he's got some submission abilities himself, can force some part of the fight on the feet. And Rubeski is eating some shots, maybe even gets a little bit of a cut, because on the feet, he's raw. You know, so being one-dimensional, and, you know, we use the example Khabib Nurmagomedov way too much, because we do like Mr. Khabib, the legacy, you know, continues now with his coaching through other fighters. But when he was fighting in his style... It was one-dimensional. He would grab you, pull you to the ground, maul you, hug you, hold you, submit you. So you can be one-dimensional. You just have to be freaking amazing at it. In this case here, is Rubeski so amazing that we're going to put a minus 660 price tag on a guy who only has one method of victory, and that's to be on the ground? Because on the feet, he's got a gigantic reach disadvantage. We'll have a hard you know, time getting to his opponent. So I just look, pointing it out there, he is one-dimensional, but probably still wins this fight, right? Let's talk about Nick Fior. From New Hampshire, he went 5-1 and one as an amateur before he went professional in 2019. This will be his UFC debut. His last three opponents, he fought a guy named Steven Stengel. That was last year, around 1KO win. And Mr. Stengel is 5-20 and 20 overall. <laughs> so, yeah, lack of competition there. His prior opponent, George Shepard, 2022 submission win in round one. Shepard is 15-14 and 14 overall. His prior opponent before that, Andre Borges, 2022. So all three fights we're talking about are last year. He won that fight against Borges, round one submission win. Borges is nine and five overall. So, you know, fighting, okay competition, regional scene type of thing. This would be a huge step up in competition for Nick Fjord. Um, even though Rubeski, again, not proven yet. We've seen a glimpse of him, seen him in contender series. We see that at least he's, you know, he's going to be something to deal with. He's a, he's a problem. For Fjord, here's the big thing you need to consider. He's a Renzo Gracie product. Okay, so Renzo Gracie has, I guess, one of their branches up there in New Hampshire. He's got good partners in the gym. His submission ability, according to coaches, according to interviews, people who've talked about him, teammates, it's out there online. You can find it. He's pretty good. Okay, four of his six wins have been via submission. Okay, so he's using that submission ability. He's obviously that kind of fighter. He's a Renzo Gracie fighter. He has a 100% finish rate. How about that? All six of his fights, he's finished them. So... You could say, okay, terrible competition. Yeah, low competition. I get it. But at least he's handling them the way he should. He's finishing those fights. So you do like to see that. Now, what are my concerns for him? <laughs> Number one, the quality of competition. He fought a guy named Jay Ellis. <laughs> okay. 
and Jay Ellis, you know, he deserves his own award, you know, like the, the Lifetime Achievement Award of some kind of category. He fought Jay Ellis twice. Now, I, I, get, I get the idea he fought him the second time because it was a bit of like a last minute thing. His other opponent like backed out. He needed someone to fill in and Jay Ellis was like, I got you, dude. I'll, I'll, I'll step in for you. But Jay Ellis is 16 and 106 overall. Yeah, he's won 16 fights. He's lost 106 total fights. And so that's who's on his resume here. And he beat this guy twice. So we're talking about he finished every fight, all six fights. Finishing Jay Ellis, I don't know what that counts for, right? His takedown offense is sloppy, okay? And when I'm talking about sloppy, he doesn't do like a typical wrestler's like drop down to a knee, double leg takedown. And I'm referring here to Nick Fior. His takedown offense is sloppy. He leaves himself open to easily get reversed or find himself in a bad position, maybe give up a submission position. So against a guy like Rubeski, who's pretty gnarly with his wrestling and wants to get into your hips and take you down, if Fior tries to get takedown and get sloppy, he'll leave himself wide open. All right, a few more thoughts in this fight before we wrap it up. So we got Fiora sitting around plus 490, Rubeski sitting around minus 660. If you're going to parlay Mutez Rubeski, there's just such limited value. I, I would just really implore you to really think about that twice. The fight not going the distance and the fight going under two and a half rounds or two props. I like those a lot. We're going to find a way to play those spots. If you want to take Fior to win, is a method he can win by? It's going to be by submission. Okay, that's where again he's a he's a Renzo Gracie guy. We've seen much better fighters than Mutez Rubeski make a mistake, give up their neck, and, and lose by submission against other fighters. The last thought on Fior, we mentioned the length, right? He's like five seven ish. Will have significantly more height and reach. The way that plays out for him in submissions or on the ground is he'll have more leverage. You see, he'll have a little bit longer arms and, and longer forearm length and, and legs for triangles, the whole deal. So in the case of Mutez Rubeski, Rubeski, excuse me, who's built more like a little fire hydrant, that length is going to help Nick Fuhr. Think about guys like, for example, Nate Diaz, how they use that to help them with submissions. Again, Nick Fuhr has submission ability, Renzo Gracie product. People are talking a big game about him. So the play is Fior by submission. If you want to get a big bang for your buck, the fight knock with the distance and the under two and a half. But we're going to say Montez Rubeski most likely pulls off the win, most likely wins the fight himself into the distance. That's the plays, guys. That's our thoughts on it. Give us your feedback. Let's move on. Moving up the card, this should be the last fight on the prelim card. So according to the itinerary, this will be the main event of the prelim card, the last fight before we go, obviously, to the main card. It's a middleweight clash between a fighter from Ghana, Abdul Razak Hassan, who's 11 and 5 overall, against Claudio Ribeiro, who hails from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Before we get into the detailed breakdown, let me give you guys the pick and the method of victory for those who need to skip forward in the video. We like Abdul Hassan to win the fight via round one KO. That is our prediction. We like him to win the fight via round one KO. All right, back to the breakdown here. Let's talk about these two fighters in detail. For Mr. Hassan, one and four in his last five fights. Oof, whenever you see all that red there, you're like, that's a little bit of a glaring issue. But we're going to talk about each of those fights in, uh, in our breakdown. He's from Arlington, Texas currently, even though he was born in Ghana, 37 years old, five foot 10 in height. So a few just shorter than his opponent here, Carter Ribeiro, who said six foot one. A 73-inch reach for Al-Hassan with a 77-inch reach for Ribeiro. So Ribeiro's going to have a slight reach advantage and height advantage. For Claudio, he's 10-2 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights. He's out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, 30 years old. And he's from Brazilian Black Tie. That's the gym he trains out of. And for Al-Hassan, he trains out of Fortis MMA. All right, looking at the two fighters' details for Al-Hassan, he's averaging about 6.5 minutes in the cage per fight, which is telling you most of his fights don't go very long. 
He lands about 3.57 strikes per minute, but absorbs 4.06. It's not a huge negative ratio, but clearly he's actually getting hit more than he's actually hitting his opponent. He averages about one takedown per fight with 52% takedown defense. We mentioned before he was born in Ghana. He had a bit of a running with the law a few years ago, and it's it's a, it's absurd. It's a kind of a absurd story, but basically he went to Las Vegas. He, he had kind of a good time with some ladies. Afterwards, they claimed that he multiple ladies that he was hanging out with that evening claimed that he you know basically uh, had raped them or whatever and so he was accused they went through a whole trial situation lost time in the cage but he was eventually you know uh proven innocent and it came out that i guess you know it was a false accusation whatever kind of got his life back in order he's married he's got kids you know but he went through that that put a like a hole in his career and then the second thing is he he fought judo for like 22 years the guy has a, a limited amount unlimited amount of matches in judo that's his background his fighting style but that's why he has a limited record. When you look at his record in UFC, and you're like, well, only a few fights, 37 years old. Um, that's why. He had a long fighting history and then also had this issue with the legal issue. So anyway, his last few fights, he fought Jaqueline Buckley recently, won that fight by split decision last year as a plus 130 underdog. Prior to that, knocked out Chiriquio in round one. Uh, that was two years ago. Uh, in round one as a plus 200 underdog, which is, if you look at that fight now, Chiriquio's been on a rough run, but uh, crazy. If you bet on a Haas on that fight as a plus 200 underdog, that's just a great spot. He lost to Jacob Malkoon. That was a frustrating one. He was a minus 310 favorite. That was two years ago. I remember that fight in detail because I, I had some money there on Hassan thinking, oh, he's going to starch this guy, Malkoon. And Malkoon just wrestled him to the ground and for all three rounds. And you have to remind yourself, even though Abdul looks like he can wrestle, the physique is impressive. He's a judoka. You know, I mean, judoka, ju judoka, I'm saying it wrong. He's a judo fighter. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Um, for Chaos Williams, he fought him in 2021. Round one KO loss, he got starched as a minus 210 favorite. And then he lost by decision against Munir Lezez as a minus 350 favorite. That run there of losing as a minus 310 favorite, minus 210 favorite, minus 350 favorite, that's just rough. And it, you got to, I know it's two years ago, but it, it's there. It's in the back of your mind. If you're betting on Al-Hassan, he's been a favorite before and just really let people down. Now, what's to like about Al-Hassan? All five, five of his wins in UFC are by finish. First round KOs. So that's why we're predicting that he's going to win by first round KO. That's his only, that's only been the only way he's won in the UFC so far. In this fight, I believe he comes out not, you know, he doesn't come out running at his opponent. He'll come out and have some patience, but at some point in round one, he's going to look to throw the bomb at this his opponent and try to get him out of there. That's going to be his method to, to try to win the fight. If we get into round two and three, we've seen him slow down. Carter becomes an issue. He can be out wrestled. So I think his window of opportunity, the, the highest window of opportunity to finish, finish the fight for him is going to be in round one. I also like the fact he's very durable. He's only been finished once in 16 total career fights. So that's for Al-Hassan, very durable. Now my concern for Al-Hassan, he's 37. He looks to be at a point where, you know, his, his peak is hit. Um, but at some point here, we're gonna start seeing a slowdown. And at 37 years old, he's not a high volume striker as it is. If any part of Father Time starts creeping in, it, it's, it's gonna affect him even more. And that low volume is gonna just be a problem. He's also KO or bust, okay? So four of his five defeats have been via decision. So when he loses, it's by decision. He gets tired in round two, round three. He can't land the bomb, gets out-wrestled. His last five fights. He's one in four in his last five fights. He's on a bit of a cold streak. He's very inconsistent on the money line. We talked about it before. He's been a big favorite at times to a moderate favorite. Dropped the ball. His cardio, we mentioned it before. I'll, I'll double down on it. Look at the fight against Buckley. He is exhausted against Buckley. Now, lucky, lucky for him, Buckley was just as exhausted. But both guys had terrible cardio. He runs out of gas. His physique is muscular. 
You know, he's jacked, doesn't help him. And then, of course, we highlighted before, he's got a slightly negative striking ratio, landing just about three and a half strikes per minute, absorbing 4.06 strikes per minute. So, anyway, let's move on here to Claudio Ribeiro. So, he's making his UFC debut, a right-handed fighter from Brazil. He's a kickboxer. Uh, his one fight he had was 25 seconds in the, uh, in the cage, um, which was on, uh, excuse me, let me look up my notes here. That was his contender series fight where he won by in a 25-second knockout over Ivan Valenzuela, and that was just last year in August. So he had the impressive knockout win. If you watch the fight, it was a mistake by his opponent trying to do some like spinning back fist thing. He left himself wide open, and Claudio capitalized on it, knocked him out. So good for Claudio to capitalize on it, but it was a tad bit fluky. And if you go back and watch the fight, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, for Claudio, he's from Brazil, made his pro debut 2017. This will be his first UFC fight, as we mentioned before, came through contender series. He fought a guy named Kellis Albuquerque. Uh, that was his two fights ago, 2021, round five KO win. Albuquerque is 25 and 21 overall, so kind of a bit of a journeyman. Prior fight, Marcus Vinicius won that fight 2020, round one KO win. Marcus is 8 and 7 overall. And then prior fight against a guy named Gregory. 2019, round one KO win, Gregory's 2-1 overall. I just bring up those fights because give you an idea of who he's been fighting. And again, the fight against Ivan Valenzuela in the Dana Contender Series matchup last year, if you watch the fight, you'll see it. It's a little bit fluky. It's hard to tell what this guy is about, how good he really is. Now, what's to like about him? He's on a hot streak. He's won six fights in a row with KO finishes in every single fight. So if you just look at the topology, you say to yourself, this guy's got six straight knockouts. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but you know how this is. Like we can't we can't use this regional scene, lower level fighters, guys that are journeymen as really the, the you know the measure. Um, it usually doesn't transfer like that over to the UFC. So he's got finishing ability, but against who? Um, so quality of competition, right? That's that's the big question here. Because the finish rate's amazing. Nine of his ten wins have been by finish overall. All ten, all nine of his ten wins by finish, and all have been by TKO. Um, so the only question is now, can that transfer over to the UFC? Can he come in here against a guy like Al-Hassan, a guy who's only been finished once in 16 total mixed martial arts fights, and finish him? Um, offhand, I'm thinking, no, probably not. I think Claudio Ribeiro might have a future, right? We don't even know. Maybe the guy's got more potential than I'm, you know, I'm leaning on to. But, man, he's fighting a guy who's been around the block, you know, who's got a very long mixed martial arts record in other martial arts form besides MMA and has hella knockout power. He's proven that in the UFC. Like, that's one determining factor. You know, we know Al-Hassan can knock out UFC guys. We don't know that about Claudio yet. You know, so if you're looking at Claudio and saying, well, he can come in here and basically, you know, give Al-Hassan some trouble, tie him up and wrestle him. Like, that's not really been his game either. He's more of a KO guy, you know? So, all right. So the bottom line is we like Al-Hassan to knock out, land a huge punch on Ribeiro in round one. That's our prediction. The props we like is the fight knock on the distance, the other two and a half, and of course, Al-Hassan as a round one KO prop. So that's our pick. We like Al-Hassan to sort of, you know, get right here, get back on track. That one and four in the last five fights, it's terrifying. I get why most people wouldn't, you know, be confident betting on him. And I will also, I guess, preface all this by saying, you're not going to want to wager a lot here either way. The, one of the best bets in this fight is the fight knock with a decision, which is now sitting at minus 300, a bit chalky. It'll be a parlay piece for us somewhere. But overall... You don't want to expose yourself or, or beat up your bankroll betting on guys like Al-Hassan because we just talked about it a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago. He's been minus 310 favorite, minus 250 favorite. He's been favorites before in spots where he's just really dropped the ball. So even here, like even money range for Al-Hassan, 
you don't have a lot of confidence in betting on him. He's seven years older. If he were to lose this fight, right? If he were to lose the fight, no one's going to look at it and say, oh, I'm completely surprised. A guy who was one and four in his last five fights dropped another fight. So anyway, that's the pick, guys. We like Al-Hassan to get right here and beat the newcomer coming in, Ribeiro. But I am curious. I do want to see what Ribeiro looks like. It should be an exciting fight for the newcomer, and uh, we'll see how it goes down. That's the pick, guys. And we're up to the main card. The first fight in the main card, well, which should be the first fight in the main card. I feel like we do these videos and the next thing you know, they shuffle the entire card on you, right? What we have here, according to this itinerary, is Umar Nurmagomedov, the cousin of Khabib Nurmagomedov, up against Ronnie Barcelos. This will be a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds. Before we get to the particulars here, let's talk about the winner and the method of victory. We'd like Umar Nurmagomedov to win the fight by submission. I think what happens over the course of three rounds is he gets that anaconda style wrestling grappling. He will just eventually overwhelm Barcelos and find the submission victory. That's not an unpopular pick. I'm pretty sure that people are saying the same thing, but I want to emphasize that I respect Ronnie Barcelos. He's got a heck of an underrated wrestling and submission game himself. He'll be game on the ground, but over the course of three rounds, I think Umar, the younger fighter will outlast Barcelos and get that submission win. All right, back to the fight, fighter details. Let's talk about these two guys here. So for Umar, undefeated as an impressive 15-0 prospect. Unbelievable, right? He's currently sitting around a minus 450-ish range favorite. That's disrespectful, though. <laughs> We're going to talk about this price tag is off. And if you want to talk about underdogs that have a shot in this card, Ronnie Barcelos has more than a shot to win this fight. There's no question about that. Uh, for Nurmagomedov, he's from Russia, 26 years old in 10 months, 5'8 high with a 69-inch reach. Have a slight height advantage, about one inch and about a two-inch reach advantage. The reach advantage is not a big deal, though I will say this. Umar Nurmagomedov has a, a very nice kicking game, a lot of kicks. And so his legs are kind of longer. That reach will be there. It'll allow him to at least put his paws and his feet on Barcelos from a distance where maybe Barcelos has to maybe close a little bit more distance to actually land a strike. For Barcelos, the Brazilian fighter, he's 17-3 and three overall. When I saw that record, I thought to myself, I feel like he's lost more fights. You know, he's a guy who, again, goes under the radar. People tend to forget about him. 17-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A dog here at, like, plus 400 range, which pff, is quite wild. From Rio de Janeiro, 35 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67-inch reach. He's out of Refit Pro Fighters. As for Nurmagomedov, Umar, he's probably training literally with that traveling circus of whoever Khabib is with because I believe he's under the tutelage now of Khabib Nurmagomedov and whatever fighters are in that little circle, okay? Fighter details. So Nurmagomedov, 26 years old. He's a kickboxer, wrestler. You'd think of these guys from Dagestan and like, oh, wrestle heavy. No, this guy's kicking game is fabulous. He separates himself. He's the evolved, you know, the Dagestani fighter 2.0. So the first, you know, UFC wave of Dagestani fighters who came out of there, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, like Khabib, they were wrestle heavy grapplers. You know, they had that combat, Russian combat Sambo in their background. Now the guys have evolved. You've got guys like Saeed Nurmagomedov and guys like Umar Nurmagomedov and guys like Islam Makachev who are showing more of a variety of skills and more of a striking game. And that's the case with Umar Nurmagomedov. His kicking game is fantastic. His fights average about nine minutes in time length. He's averaging 4.35 strikes per minute and absorbing 0.37. That number is absurd. So in the few fights he's had in the UFC, my man is averaging 4.35 strikes per minute, absorbing 0.37. He's also averaging about five takedowns per fight has 0% takedown defense. I imagine because he's never defended a takedown yet. 
So he grew up wrestling in Dagestan as a young boy. He's the cousin of Khabib Magomedov. He went 1-0 as an amateur before going pro 2016. He fought in Fight Nights Global and PFL, part of the UFC. He made his UFC debut in 2021, so about two years ago. He's currently 3-0 in the UFC with two submissions in those and two submission wins in those three fights. His last few opponents, he fought Nate Menez, got a decision win over him last year. And that fight is interesting because he was a minus 950 favorite. So for Nate Menez to go the full distance, that was impressive. Um, and for Nemagomedov, it wasn't the best showing. He should have gone in there and probably got a finish according to at least the books. His prior fight, Brian Keller, he was also a minus 900 favorite in that spot, but got a round one submission, so he showed up the way he should have. And then against Sergey Morozov, his first fight in the UFC, he got a round one, I'm sorry, a round two submission win as a minus 540 favorite. So there's a theme there. Namanga Medoff is another fighter like Rubeski, where there's a bubble that's going to burst at some point, and you just don't want to be holding that ticket. There's no reason to rush to put these these lines into parlays now at minus 500 range it's a much better price tag than the minus 900 range but still you're not getting a lot of bang for your buck there we're going to parlay it. we are going to parlay the moment off on the money line but not with a ton of investment and not more than maybe just one parlay. Not going to parlay them into we're not going to put into like maybe more than one parlay we don't have that kind of confidence now what's the like about the active fighter he fought twice last year he fought once 2021. He'll probably fight twice this year. He's already fighting in January, right? So he'll fight probably twice this year. His submission ability is on point. Seven of his 15 wins are by submission. His grappling, it isn't elite like, let's say, some of the best grapplers from Dagestan. But it's pretty damn good. If he gets into top position, he knows what to do. He'll find him submission opportunities. And if he gets in top position long enough, he'll waste time, secure you know, position control, and he'll cruise to victory. His kicking game is elite. Question mark kicks, teep kicks. Lower leg kicks, head kicks, body kicks. You'll see it on display. His kicking game is special. Now, what's my concerns for Nurmagomedov? The limited striking power. He's not registered a single knockout win yet. Now, the kicking game is amazing. It's elite, whatever. But he hasn't kicked somebody and knocked him out. Hasn't punched someone and knocked him out. So, the striking power just hasn't really been there. Now, could it just be circumstance? Maybe. But still, that's a question mark. And also, just him getting tested. Being undefeated. It is impressive. It's nice. You know, you like to see these undefeated prospects rushing the whole deal. Dagestan, Khabib's cousin, on and on and on. But we haven't seen him really get tested. And what happens if he gets hurt or maybe suffers a small injury? How he responds? So there's just open-ended question. I'm not criticizing him for that. We're just saying we don't know about that him. We don't know about that level of him yet and how he responds. Okay, as for Ronnie Barcelos, the Brazilian fighter, also orthodox. So fighting out of a right-handed stance, 35 years old, a little bit older, right? Getting to that point, long in the tooth. He's a boxer wrestler. When I say boxer wrestler, when you watch his stance, he's in a boxing stance. He has a hell of a wrestling background, though. Um, but the wrestling comes out in spurts. Most of the time with him, he's almost like in a kickboxing stance. And he does a good job of striking his hands. Fluid hands. You can't tell he had such a heavy wrestling background. His actual striking is pretty good. He averages about 13, point, well, 13 minutes per fight. So his fights are going to the third round. He's very durable. Good cardio. He lands about 5.82 strikes per minute, absorbs 4.94. High volume, you like that, but not the best defense. I mean, he's got himself almost one more strike per minute than he's absorbing. Not quite the impressive ratio that we saw from Magomedov, but the point is Barcelos has pretty good output, and he's a positive ratio for striking. He averages 1.71 takedowns per 15 minutes and has 93% takedown defense. Those are excellent numbers, which will be tested in this fight against Magomedov. So again, Barcelos from Brazil. We talked about the wrestling. Let's put some highlights here on his wrestling career. Five-time Brazilian national champion, 
two-time South American wrestling champion, four-time world BJJ title in lower belt classes of BJJ, so whatever the lower colors are. The point is the guy has been competing for years. He's been on the mat for years. Way before he put on the gloves and started doing the mixed martial arts thing, he was on the mat. He's a black belt in BJJ. He began mixed martial arts at 25 years old after all that other accomplishments he had behind him. So here's a guy with a phenomenal ground game background who's shown it in spurts in the UFC against someone like Nurmagomedov, who that's also what he's very good at. I feel like there's going to be at least some part of the ground game that uh, Barcelos should be able to neutralize, even just defending a few takedowns because of his wrestling prowess, because of his wrestling credentials. And if the fight goes to the ground, uh, we should be surprised if, if maybe he goes in the attack and tries to get a submission. So I just think with this fight, the price the price tag is off. Barcelos has opportunities here. He's better than I think people think. And on the ground, he should be able to neutralize a few things. Barcelos made his UFC debut in 2018. He was in the Ultimate Fighter 2018. He won, actually, in the finale. That's how he got into the UFC. There's a bunch of tough fighters and uh, contender series fighters all over this card. Anyway, he also earned Fight the Night three times in UFC. That's impressive. Barcelos is a good fighter. He's the kind of guy where, again, he goes under the radar. He fought Trevin Jones last year, got the win as a slight favorite. He fought Victor Henry last year, and that was crazy. He was a minus 500 favorite, and he lost to Victor Henry, and it just left everyone like like stunned. That must have broken so many parlays that, that night. It broke one of mine. But Victor Henry came in there and stunned everyone. And again, Barcelos was a minus 500 favorite. How did that happen? His prior fight, lost by decision against Team Valiev, also as a favorite at minus 225. And then won against Khalid Tafa, 2020, by decision as a minus 435 favorite. A lot of his fights recorded decision, by the way. What's to like about Mr. Ronnie Barcelos? UFC experience. He has eight total fights in UFC. That's more than uh, Umar Nurmagomedov. He has three. So you like the fact he got more experience in UFC. His wrestling is very good, as we documented. He has a win over Saeed Nurmagomedov, and that win is aging very well. You go back and watch that win. He dominated Saeed. He won round one and two, but then in round three, took down Saeed, got like top control, was going after a triangle choke. I mean, just put Saeed Nurmagomedov in check. And if you watch Saeed Nurmagomedov fight even recently, that win, that win again is aging very well. Now, what are my concerns for Barcelos? A signature victory. Now, granted, Saeed Nurmagomedov is the win I just talked about, and it's a pretty good win. But beyond that, like, does he have a, a win in the UFC where you're like, oh, that's that's a big-time guy? Not yet, okay? He also lost a big-time favorite, that win, that loss against Henry. That's still in my head. That was just last year. As a minus 500 favorite to lose against a guy like Henry, who, no offense against Henry, but, man, it was like it was like Barcelos wasn't himself that fight. He didn't have their sense of urgency. He got picked apart in the feed. It was just... It wasn't the best version of him. And some people would even say, was that a sign that he's getting older and slowing down and we're seeing a different version of him now? I don't know. I don't know. And last but not least, finishing. His last five fights have gone a decision. He has one finish in his in the last four years. Okay, so when it comes to finishing ability, that's also something that's not really in the wheelhouse of Barcelos. So now we got a three-round fight probably where he has to survive for three rounds against a guy who's not known for knocking out people but known for submitting people. The fight gets to the ground it gets close, and you just see where Umar Nurmagomedov maybe has a little more in the striking arsenal, a little more output, a few flashy kicks, and then edges out a decision win. At the very least, you still see Umar winning this fight. A few last little thoughts on this fight for you guys. Props I want to consider playing are the fight starting round two, the fight not going the distance, and Umar by submission. Those props are all props you might want to consider. You know, Look, Umar Nurmagomedov is super talented. He's training with some of the best in the world. His grappling, I probably didn't talk enough about it. The fact that he's training under Khabib Nurmagomedov, you know they're in the gym, they're grappling, they're he's got that part squared away. you know. So on the feet, it's like, are they even? Him and Barcelos, 
I don't think so. I think Nurmagomedov has him on the feet. I think he's faster. He's quicker. He's got more volume. The kicking game is 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 a separator. So, you know, I like Umar Nurmagomedov to win the fight. The people that are betting on Barcelos, do yourself a favor. Look at the decision prop. Okay, look at maybe even split decision for Barcelos. If this gets close and greasy, he probably wins by decision. That tends to be his path to victory. So I am mad at you if you're on Barcelos. Uh, for us, we're going to be on the side of Umar Nurmagomedov. But if you're on Barcelos, again, I feel you. I understand it. Look at the decision prop. That's the breakdown, guys. And we're up to the second of the two women's fights in this card. It's going to be a bantamweight bout between Raquel Rocky Pennington and Caitlin Vieira from Brazil. Full disclosure, we've had a chance to interview the wonderful Raquel Pennington on the show, and so it's hard to, to not root for her. Um, she's you know got an amazing story, went through high school, had injuries, and you know broke her back and stuff, and just a real warrior. I uh, want to give her a shout out, also her and her, her uh, partner, Tisha Torres. I say partner, I believe they're engaged now. Um, they are also pregnant, and We'll be expecting an addition to the family in the near future. So I believe Tisha Torres will be taking some time off, obviously, to do the, the motherly duties. But nonetheless, Raquel Pennington, an all-star in the octagon, out of the octagon. And maybe I dare say one of, like, on the verge of becoming one of the best female mixed martial artists of this generation. And when I say that, I don't mean like, I'm not saying the best. I'm not saying she's a, a champion or, or, or takes the reins of, of people like, um, you know, Amanda Nunes. I'm saying one of, like, the, the household names. It's been around for a while. A lot of wins. I'm getting a little long-winded. I apologize. Let me give you guys the picks. For those of you who just you know, move forward in this video, you got limited time. You, you know, you're pressed for time. The pick for this fight is going to be Raquel Pennington to win by decision. Um, that's not groundbreaking announcement or news or anything that's going to be very rare. This fight probably goes to full distance, three rounds. Those props will be the most attractive. The over two and a half, the fight starting round three, the fight going to decision. Those are all props you want to consider playing. I'll tell you what. You want to play those spots. You don't want to be holding tickets for Vieira or Pennington when it goes to round three, or, or I'm sorry, it goes to the scorecards, and now it's all about how the judges saw something. This is not a sport that's judged or evaluated in some type of objective measure. It's, it's literally all just subjective to whatever the hell people think they're seeing. And so we will have fights. We will have fights on this card, unfortunately, and this could be one of them where Raquel Pennington's pace and pressure may be attractive to one judge, and then Caitlin Vieira's long, nice strikes may have just, you know, pulled off a card or two for other judges where they think it just looked more like the bigger strikes look more impressive. So, you know, be careful betting the money line here. I would stay away from that. I think look, the props would be way more attractive. All right, as for the two fighters, let's talk about details here. For Vieira, she's 13-2 and two overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. The money line's even here, minus 110 on both sides. Vieira's out of Brazil, 31 years old, 5'8", and high with a 68-inch reach. She trades, out of, she trades out of Nova Uniao, which is a very good gym down in Brazil. As for Rocky Pennington, 14-8 and eight overall. Um, again, within that record, which we'll talk about, a ton of good experience. She's 4-1 in her last five fights. Again, even money in the money line. She's out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I believe she's a native of Colorado. She grew up in Colorado, played high school sports in Colorado, yada, yada, yada. She's 34 years old. You think of Raquel Pennington, and she's getting to that point now, getting, you know, little older but she's only 34 like she still has some time she's been around for a while so only three years older than caitlin Vieira. for pennington five foot seven so one inch shorter than Vieira, and with a 67 and a half inch reach about the same reach she trains out of altitude in may and so comparing these two fighters in terms of notes for Vieira, you know she tends to go to decision number one most of her fights go pretty long matter of fact her average fight time in the ufc is 15 minutes 27 seconds you're like how can it be over 15 minutes well because she's been in some five round fights that's why um, 
She lands about 3.13 strikes per minute, but absorbs 4.03, so a negative striking ratio for Caitlin Vieira. That's not a good look. She averages about one and a half takedowns per fight. That's interesting. Like, if she goes for a takedown here against Pennington, that could be very fruitful for her. And her takedown defense is very good, 92%, though Pennington will not be looking for takedowns. Pennington, her nickname is Rocky, okay? It's a stand-up game for her. Now, as for the background of her Vieira, she went pro 2014. She made her UFC debut in 2016. She's 7-2 in the UFC. Like, these numbers are, like, deceiving. I looked this up. I'm like, wow, Vieira's been that good in the UFC. She has, 7-2. Her biggest career wins are over Holly Holm and Misha Tate. We'll talk about them in a, pre in a second. We'll preface those wins in a second. She's faced very good competition in her young career. So in her young career at 31 years old, she's faced some good opponents. Her last opponent, Holly Holm, 2022, last year, split decision win as a plus 190 underdog. That was tough to watch. I think just about everyone that saw that fight and saw the Patty Pimlet fight recently thought that it should have gone the other way. Um, it was obvious to most people that Holly Holmes did enough to win that fight, but for some reason, it was a split. It went the way of Yara. It is what it is, right? <laughs> Her prior fight, Misha Tate, she won that fight by decision. That was two years ago, 2021. Now, that fight, I think she did win the fight. Now, I was on Misha Tate to win, so I was frustrated that Misha Tate didn't win the fight, but I do agree with the judges on, on that fight. I thought Yara won the fight. And then her prior fight before that, Yana Kunitskaya, 2021, decision loss. She lost as a minus 275 favorite. So here's the thing with the Holly Holm and Misha Tate fights. On paper, in 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that's going to look like really good. You know, these are some of the best that ever fought during that generation, right? Misha Tate, Holly Holm. But here's the reality. Holly Holm and Misha Tate are just a fraction of what they used to be. They're not anywhere near what they used to be as fighters. Misha Tate especially, I feel like, has kind of really fallen off. Whereas Holly Holm, you know, I thought she won the fight anyway. You know, so those two wins are... They can be looked at in, in several different ways, put it that way. Now, what's the like about Vieira? The quality of competition, as we just mentioned before. She's faced quality opponents in UFC, for example, like Irene Aldana, Misha Tate, Holly Holm, and Zingano. Um, size advantage. She tends to be the longer, you know, rangier fighter. In this matchup, she's not much taller, but she tends to have a good size advantage. Like, she cuts weight. She's got some broad shoulders. She tends to be the bigger girl, put it that way. She's also a very active fighter. She fought twice last year. She fought once 2020, the COVID year, and she'll probably fight twice this year since she's fighting already in January. Limited finishing ability. That's one of my big concerns with her, though. Okay, Four of her last five fights have gone to decision. She hasn't won a fight by a finish in almost six years, so she doesn't have a high finish rate. Her record is a bit misleading. The recent wins over Holly Holm, Misha Tate, we talked about. You know, Casual fans will see that and get those names and think, oh my gosh, she beat some of the legends. Yeah, those legends are they're just over the hill. It's, 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 uh, it's a misleading situation, like I said. They're valuable. They're, they're good wins for her, but... You know, one, maybe she would have lost, and the other one is, you know, gets older fighter, whatever. Um, and lastly, her defense. She's got a negative striking ratio, as we talked about before. As for Rocky Pennington, American fighter. She's an orthodox fighter, right-handed, trades out of Elevation Fight Team. She's a boxer slash brawler. Like, she wants to get with you in the phone booth. She wants to bang with you. She's not going to back up. She doesn't mind, you know, taking one to give one. She's fought a lot of fights, 33 total fights in her total career between amateur and professional. She lands about 3.93 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.28. Not an amazing positive ratio, not even high output. So how does she do her job? Well, for her, it's not volume per se. It's the harder punches. That's what I think gets her the win here is that she lands the more notable, harder strikes that move Vieira's head, that maybe back Vieira up. That's how I believe she gets the, the, the uh, judges to actually give her the, the win on, on, on cards. Now, she averages one takedown per 15 minutes. I was surprised to even see that. Again, Raquel's not really known much for her takedowns, but I guess if she sees the opportunity, she'll take one. Her takedown defense is 63%, so not quite as good as Vieira, 
I guess someone's going to try a takedown at some point. According to the numbers, they're going to at least try at least one takedown or so throughout the fight. So for Raquel Pennington from Colorado, she had a terrible back injury in high school, like broke her back snowboarding or something like that. And then eventually couldn't even go to college and play sports. She was going to be a college athlete. She was playing multiple sports in high school. So that's sort of how she comes out of high school. She recovers from that and eventually looks for a way to, you know, rehab her body and then finds mixed martial arts. And her mom, you know, done interviews and said like, you know, we, we didn't think it was a good idea for her to do martial arts, but she, that was her way of getting motivated, getting back on her feet. And so that became like her savior, her path to physical recovery. Um, anyway, she fought Invicta, part of the UFC. She won season 18 of the Ultimate Fighter, another Ultimate Fighter uh, legend over here on the uh, on this on this fight card. Her last opponent, Aspen Ladd, 2022 decision win. She was a minus 160 favorite, and she looked good in that fight. It was an easy win for her. Her prior opponent before that, Macy Chausson, a round two submission win as a minus 135 favorite, and that was also a very nice win. She beat Pandy Kianzad two years ago by decision as a minus 130 favorite. Looking back at that fight now, it's like, how was she only a minus 130 favorite? That was just like light work for her. And then against Marianne Renault, 2020 decision win as a minus 225 favorite. So she's been a slight favorite or almost a pick him in her last four or five fights, and she's gotten the job done. Now, what's to like about our, our girl here, Rocky Pennington? Well, the competition, right? She fought Holly Holm twice. She fought Irene Aldana, Amanda Nunes, Misha Tate, uh, in her prime, by the way, Misha Tate in her prime. Jessica Andrade twice and Roxanne Montefiore. So, you know, when she also fought Holly Holm, by the way, that was also in Holly Holm's prime. So good competition. She's very durable. She's only been finished once in her career, and that was by submission 11 years ago against Kat Zingano. So she went through all these fighters, Amanda Nunes and Holly Holmes twice and Misha Tate, all these fighters, and didn't get finished. Yeah, she's very durable. She could get punch. Now, what are my concerns for Rocky Pennington? The low finish rate. Nine of her last 11 fights have gone to decision. So I need her to land some big punches here to win this fight and get the judges to see those punches and maybe give her the edge on the scorecards, but I don't expect her to knock out Vieira or hurt her. The big wins, right? So she's had the big fights, you know, but she's faced top competition. Unfortunately, she's not been able to get those big wins. So I mentioned before, she's one of those fighters where she should be one of the best in the generation that she's in. She's fought some of the best. She's hung around, good record in UFC. But she hasn't been able to break through that bubble, that ceiling of being able to be up there with some of the best of them or be a legit title contender because of the fact that she's lost those fights against those better fighters. So what does that tell you? It tells you, well, she's on the cusp. She's on the cusp of greatness. Just hasn't broke through and had that big win yet. And lastly, the age and the injuries. So she's starting a family now, just got engaged. Um, all the positive things you want to be doing, especially if you're you know, getting to that point in your life, right? These are the priorities. Now you hear fighters talk about once they have a family, the priorities shift a little bit, what matters to them more. They'll go from being the people that would say, I'll, I'll die in the octagon to now it's like, well, you know, I got a family, my wife, my, my kids, my partner. So age at 34, her body's probably more like a, the age of a 44 year old person because of the breaking of the back in high school, major injury, other injuries she suffered from other sports. Um, if you talk to Raquel, we did an interview with her and she talked about breaking her hand between one of her last few fights um, and just how often she's dealing with injuries in general. I would imagine Raquel Pennington stops fighting at some point specifically because of that, not because she doesn't enjoy fighting, not because of getting cut, not because of the preparation. I think she enjoys all those things, but she is a prime example of, you know, the injuries start taking a toll. So what am I saying to you? What I'm saying is she's fighting a younger opponent, a Brazilian opponent who's kind of on a streak here. Um, so Raquel Pennington's you know, injury history, the fact she's getting up there in age, starting a family, these could all be factors that could possibly, you know, at least contribute to maybe her not being the best that she's ever been. And at 34 years old, she's slowing down, yada, yada, yada. You get the point. All right, a few more details in this fight before I wrap it up here. So we like Pennington to win the fight by decision. 
Again, I want to emphasize, I believe it's because she lands a few significant strikes in those two of the three rounds that she gets where she's able to get the judges to see, oh, those were the big strikes in the round. Those are the most notable strikes. We're going to give her the round. But, 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 but. Could that happen flip side for Vieira? Yes. Yes, it can. So the best betting spots for us here in this fight are the fight going over two and a half rounds, the fight starting round three, and then the fight going to decision. Those will be the props we'll look at because, again, to bet money line here is a coin flip. We, we really can't really tell you how the judges will see the fight because it goes to decision. And at that point, again, you're not really – put it this way. You watch a basketball game. The final score says 110 to 105. You know the effing score. <laughs> You know what it is, right? Hockey game. They have rules, overtime. You know the score. This sport, one of the best sports in the world, is unique in the fact that when the fight is over, you don't know the damn score, okay? And there's going to be three people, literally with three completely different viewpoints, looking at all this stuff differently without having access to the, the compu box numbers, which makes no sense. And they're going to spit out a decision and say, I have this guy winning this round. This, and, you know, we see it all the time. So avoid that. You know, save yourself the headache. Stay, you know, save yourself the sanity. This is a high-risk betting spot for the money line. So just avoid that. Look at the distance props um, and just settle with that, and you'll be better off. So that's the breakdown, guys. We'd like Raquel Pennington to win the fight by decision. For the people that like Vieira, I'm here to listen to you all day long. I can see it happening. She's on a hot streak. She looks pretty good. The last few wins, somewhat impressive. But I'm going to stay with Rocky Pennington. And probably a little biased here because we've had her on the show. Wish you the best of luck, Rocky Pennington. Get it done here by decision. Let's move on. All right, cruising up the main card. We've got a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Punahele Soriano and Roman Kopilov. All right, before I get to the details of this breakdown, I'm going to give you our pick and the method of victory for those that need to skip forward in the video. So we like Kopilov by decision. That's our prediction. Uh, I'll tell you, not with a lot of confidence. Uh, as we get into this breakdown, I'll explain it to you. Because those who like Soriano, especially Soriano by KO, we feel you on that one. All right, back to this breakdown. Let's talk details. So for Soriano, who's from Hawaii, he goes by Puna, like Puna Hele. So short for Puna Hele, it's just Puna. So Mr. Puna is 9-2 overall. That just sounds weird. I'm sorry. Let's just call him Mr. Soriano. Mr. Soriano is 9-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight favor here sitting around minus 165 currently out of Hawaii. 30 years old in one month, so just turned 30 years old recently. 5'11 in height with a 72 and a half inch reach. And he trains out of extreme couture with a handful of different uh, Hawaiian descent athletes um, that I guess have congregated there in Las Vegas. And if you're thinking, if you're from Hawaii, you're better off training on the West Coast somewhere, right? Vegas, California, makes sense. Not too far from home. Well, far from home, but at least closer in terms of if you're going to live in the United States. Anyway, back to this breakdown. Roman Kopilov, the Russian fighter, 9-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Slight dog here, around plus 130, 140-ish range. He's out of Novosibirsk, Russia. I tried to say it. I just butchered it. 31 years old as well. Um, I'm sorry, 31 years old, one year older than Soriano. Six foot in height with a 75-inch reach. The height, not a big advantage, but the about three-inch three in so ran advantage there in the uh, Kopilov range for the reach. That could play a factor, and that just matters only if Kopilov can stay at range, pick apart Soriano a little bit, um, get more, more action going, get more volume going, because the reality is if 
Soriano stands with Roman, and Romeo tries to stay there with, with Soriano, at some point Soriano's going to probably crack Kapilov. So Kapilov has to work at range and be careful. That reach advantage could maybe play a way into helping him out in that area. So, all right, let's look at the details of these two fighters. For Mr. Soriano, he's a southpaw. That's always a factor. He's a boxer. Now, here's a guy with a nice wrestling background, which we'll talk about, wrestled in college, but he doesn't use it in the cage. He is strictly a, a boxer, a brawler. He has Mike Tyson tendencies. He'll drop the shoulder, look for a power punch, um, and he's an impressive striker. He's got a lot of power in his hands. His fights average about nine minutes and 46 seconds. That was a surprise to me when I look up his stats. I mean, that's almost three rounds. Or not three full rounds, but it's almost going to the third round. That was a surprise. This guy would look at knockout, knockout power. But as you look at his topology, you notice that, you know what? There's a chink in the armor. If you could just get him to the second, third round, wear him out a little bit, that's where he tends to have a hard time, and he tends to lose by decision. His striking numbers, he lands 3.95 strikes per minute. So just about four strikes per minute, absorbs 3.42 positive ratio he lands about one takedown for 15 minutes and defends his takedowns at a 31 percent rate here's a young man who wrestled in college he's a former 171 pound hawaii state champion so it's just like how do you defend takedowns at such a low rate you know what's going on here he's off balance and he's tired so when he throws these big shots he's off balance he can get taken down give up his back or later in the fight he's fatigued he can't defend takedowns so he's got the skill set to wrestle He's a guy who wrestled in college, not Division Three, but still a decent college program, Division Three, where he actually had some teammates there who've also gone on and fought in the UFC, I believe. He went performance of the night versus Dolce. That was last year, right? He had the knockout win over him in round two. That was last year, 2022. He came in as a minus 25 favorite. He's a brown belt in judo. A lot of good things to like about Punahele Soriano, but the big is the cardio. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's one of the big ones. He fought Nick Maximoff last year. Split decision loss, got out-wrestled. Minus 200 favorite in that spot. Not great. He fought Brandon Allen, 2021 decision loss. That's a minus 115 pick and price. And then also fought Dusko Todorovic, 2021, two years ago. Had a round one KO win as a plus 140 underdog. So if you're looking at his price tags the last few fights, Lingy and Bula, that was on point. Against Maximov, favorite he lost. Against Brandon Allen, pick him, he lost. And then against Todorovic, who's a slight dog, he won. So the, the numbers have not been accurate on him in terms of the money line. Now, what's to like about our boy Soriano? The KO power. His fighting style is like reminiscent of just a, a, a heavy-handed pro boxer. And so when you look at him in the octagon, you forget sometimes he's fighting mixed martial arts. He's not trying to defend takedowns. He's not, looking to, he's not looking to grapple or clinch. He just wants to land big, heavy blows. All three of his UFC wins have been by KO. Eight of his nine wins have been finishes. And so you see now he's got a high finish rate. That's his path to victory. He's going to try to club you, sub you. Not sub you. He's going to try to club you over the head, beat you. You know, so he's got KO power. That's how he gets the job done, right? Unfortunately, that power like diminishes over the course of the fight. That that becomes the issue. So like round one KO or bust with him. He had success in LFA and on and also on contender series as prior his prior path to the UFC. He's also been competitive as an athlete since way back in high school. So you do like the fact he's got a long background in sports, wrestled in high school, state champion, wrestled in college. Now he is as a professional athlete. So he's got the discipline, the work ethic, the mindset. All the things you want. Now, that should also make his cardio issue become uh, something he would address. But the bottom line is his cardio is a problem. Once he gets past round one, he tends to fall off a cliff. Now, the power, it's still there, but he's just, it, the punches become more loopy. There's more energy involved, less, less volume. And so, Kapilov's path to victory is really simple. Get out of the first round. Somehow, find a way to drag this fight to round two, round three. He's going to have to do it because in round one, 
when Soriano's full of energy, has all his power intact, he's going to be a problem for anybody. And for Kapilov, he needs to get out of round one, period. Now, also my concerns for Soriano, a fighter IQ, okay? Here's a guy who has been an athlete for a long time, round good coaches, state champion, the whole deal. He knows that Carter's been a problem for him. He knows his fighting style's been a problem for him. Will we see adjustments? We haven't seen them. Will we see adjustments in this fight? That's a fighter IQ issue. That's also maybe a coaching issue, a preparation issue. Maybe he's not even listening to his coaching. The bottom line is he's got to address the, the fact that his fighting style and cardio have been a problem in the past. And then last but not least, he's a bit of a one-trick pony. If he can't knock you out and hurt you in round one, you got him. So for Roman Kapilov, again, if he could just simply get the fight to round two or round three, test the gas tank of, of Soriano, that's the path to victory. So for Soriano, I want to see some development in this fight. I want to see him evolve a little bit. You know, show us that he's improved his cardio. Show us that maybe he could work behind a jab a little bit and not just be a Mike Tyson knockout puncher. As for Kapilov, the Russian fighter, he's also a southpaw. So we got two southpaws here. Should be very interesting. He's a former combat sambo fighter, so his his base is in combat sambo. That's the fight. That's the fighting style that Khabib and those guys would do on Dagestan, which is a form of like judo, throwing, wrestling. There's some grappling in there, um, but there's also some striking in there as well. His fights average 13 and a half minutes. He averages 3.44 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.81. So striking numbers are not great. He's got a negative striking ratio for Kapilov. Now, he only averages 0.37 takedowns per 15 minutes, but has an 87% takedown defense. So, takedown defense is very good, but Soriano won't even try to take him down anyway. <laughs> and for a takedown offense, it's not really there. So, what's going to happen in this fight? We're going to have two guys standing for three full rounds. There'll probably be some blood. Someone probably gets clipped at some point, and the fight probably does not go the full distance. Something's got to give. But at some point over the course of three rounds, someone's going to probably land something that's going to be significant and put the fight to the end. Or put a fight to the put a, put an end to the fight for Kapilov. He began he began training hand to hand combat when he was only nine years old. He's got a combat samba sambo background. Multiple time Russian and European champion. Five time world hand to hand battle champion. He fought for Fight Nights Global and ACB in Russia. He trains at a small MA gym in his hometown. I don't know the name of it, but it's a small MA gym in his hometown. Then when he gets closer to like his his fight towards the end of his fight camps, he'll go to like a bigger gym in like Moscow or St. Petersburg, Russia, where he can join some better fighters and finish the last few weeks of his camp. His last few opponents, he fought the Chirico last year, round three KO win. He was a pick him in that fight. Nice quality win for him. He fought Albert Durayev. That was two years ago, 2021. Lost by decision as a plus 20 underdog. I apologize for my dog in the background shaking his head over here, making some noise. And then he also fought Carl Robertson. Oh, this is a this tough one right here. He lost by submission. In round three, 2019, against Carl Robertson. And look, nothing against Carl Robertson, but it's been a tough run for him recently. He's not been doing very well. And so that's one of those losses where it's like, oh, you hopefully he just puts it in his rear rear mirror and doesn't come back to the rear's ugly head again. But it's just a little bit of a question mark there losing to Carl Robertson in that fashion. What's it like about Kapilov? He showed a lot of heart against Durayev. Okay, so against Durayev, he took some significant punishment. He never backed away. He didn't give up. It was a tough loss. He got his ass beat up there, but he took it like a man. And, you know, he did also knock down Durayev in that fight. Matter of fact, there was a moment there. Was it in round two? Right at the start of round two, he knocks down Durayev. So, look, it, he had some glimpses there. And, again, it's a guy like Durayev. It's, a, it's not a bad loss to have. And, again, by decision, went the full distance. He has a decent lower leg kick. I don't know if that's going to factor into this fight. I'm not sure how Puno Hale is going to do with defending lower leg kicks. But for Roman Kapilov, if he wants to extend this fight out of the first round, right, keep keep Puno Hale off balance, kick the legs a little bit, use a jab, just stay at distance. He needs to get to round two. That could be a tool in his arsenal to maybe keep himself at distance and just mix things up for to keep uh, Soriano a little busy. Now, what are my concerns for Kapilov? 
He was exhausted after his last fight against Durayev. So when he fought Durayev, he had his moments, but his gas tank was totally depleted at the end of the fight. He got through it, but he was exhausted. He took a beating as well in that fight. Matter of fact, the doctors had to look at him several times. He had bumps all over his head. So it's a kind of situation where it was a courageous experience and he got through it. But it was some, there was some definitely some chinks in the armor you could tell when you watched that fight. You could see things. If you're watching that fight as another fighter who wants to fight him, you're like, all right, this guy's got a little gas tank issue, and he gets hit a little bit too much. One more concern for him is he lacks a win over a quality opponent, right? So he has most recent win over Chirico, right? Chirico's been on a rough run, okay? So it's like it, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a quality win. Then he's lost to Robertson the way he did by submission. So in the case of Roman Kopilov, we don't really know what he's capable of. It's still a potential type of thing with him. He has flashes of, of brilliance in there. He's got moments where he looks pretty good. But overall, we've seen a little bit more from Punahale. We've seen him fight more fights in the UFC. We kind of know what he's capable of. All that said, all that said, I think that what's going to happen here, crystal ball here, Kapilov extends Soriano to round two. And then we see what's going to happen from there. And I think at that point, at plus money here, plus 140 range, Kapilov is worth a good look on the money line. Okay, matter of fact, I'm going to talk about a parlay at the end of the video where I'm going to parlay a few underdogs that are just like slight dogs. Plus 145 is not a big underdog, but it's still plus money. And if you parlay that and it hits, you're going to be in some real good plus money. You know what I'm saying? So we like Roman Kapilov to win by decision. The props that we like the most for this fight are... Soriano by first round KO. So even though we're picking against him, if you're going to bet on Soriano, the KO prop in round one, it's going to be pretty juicy. That's his most likely path to victory. Kapilov by decision. And the fight goes under two and a half rounds. Now the fight not going the distance, we might look at that prop as well, but it just may be too chalky for our liking. But again, the spots we're going to look at playing here are going to be the under two and a half rounds. Soriano by first round KO and Kapilov by decision. That's your long breakdown, guys. Let me know what you guys think. Who do you guys like in this fight? Am I underrating Soriano? Am I overlooking him a bit by picking Kapilov by decision? Or does Kapilov do what we're saying here, extend the fight to round two and three, and basically wear away at the uh, potential cardio of Soriano? That's the pick, guys. Good luck with this fight. Let's move on. Okay, next up is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Dan Ige, American fighter, versus Damon Jackson, another American fighter, and a fight that I look forward to talking about. I have a strong lean here towards Dan Ige by KO. That's the pick. I'll get it out of the way. As we break this down, I'm going to try to convince you of that. Now, I am not overlooking Damon Jackson. He's been on a really good streak recently. The guy's a two-time fighter in the UFC. He's on a second stint. Uh, amazing at submissions, the whole nine, but... I feel like this is the spot for Ige. Moneyline is great, like almost a pick em price. Uh, the prop should be coming out nice and juicy for the KO prop that I'm going to talk about. But uh, we'll jump into this and I'll try to convince you of what I'm talking about. So going over the details in these two fighters, Mr. Dan Ige, who goes by 50K, is 15-6 and six overall, but 1-4 in, in his last five fights. Also out of Hawaii, does the training over at Extreme Couture with Soriano Punahele, Punahele Soriano, those guys. He is 31 years old. Seems older, right? But he's only 31. He's actually three years younger than Damon Jackson, who's 34. And Dan Ige is 5'7 with a 71-inch reach, excuse me. Now for Jackson, he's got a 71-inch reach as well, but he's got a 5'11 in height. So about a 4-inch height advantage there for Damon Jackson. I don't believe that height or reach will play a big factor in this fight. I believe punching power will as we'll talk about in a second. So Mr. Damon Jackson, who goes by Damon Action Jackson, 22, 4-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's out of Dallas, Texas, 34 years old, 5'11", with a 71-inch reach. He's out of Fortis MMA. Now, looking at the numbers in these two fighters, a little bit deeper. For Dan Ige, he averages about 13 minutes per fight. 
lands about 3.8 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.56, so not the busiest of strikers. And I think, you look at some of his recent fights, when is he at his best? I think he, he is at his best when he's landing good strikes, precision strikes, very high accuracy. He needs to bump the volume up a little bit. You know, lands a significant strike, gets the attention of the judges. He does that sometimes, but 3.8 just doesn't cut it. He needs to up the volume a little bit. Averages about 1.23 takedowns per fight with a 51% takedown defense. Has 30 total fights between MMA, amateur, and professional. Again, trains out of Extreme Couture, very good gym. He's an orthodox fighter, right-handed fighter. Now, as for his background, he was born and raised in Hawaii. He wrestled at Warburg College, Division Three, so same school as Punahale Soriano. So again, that same little Division Three school has had some pretty good wrestlers slash MMA fighters. He went pro 2014 after nine amateur fights. He's a black belt in judo. I'm sorry, he's a br he's a brown belt in judo and a black belt in BJJ. He secured his UFC he secured his UFC contract, excuse me, with a win on Dana White Contender Series in 2013. He trains with fellow Hawaiians Soriano and Brad Tavares at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. His last three fights, he fought Mavzar Ivalov. He won, I'm sorry, lost that fight by decision as a plus 310 underdog. He also had a decision loss against Josh Emmett as a plus 110 pick and price. And then he fought Chen Jung Sung, also known as the Korean Zombie, where he lost by decision as a minus 135 pick him. So been a little bit of a rough stretch for him. What's to like about Dan Ige, though? Well, number one, very active. He fought once last year, but he fought about three times 2021. He fought about three times 2020, and he'll probably fight twice this year. So a very active fighter. He's in, he's, in, he's in the octagon often. He's very durable. He has never been finished. And that matters more so because he's fought some good fighters. So you know he's got a chin. He could take a bit of a punch. He did get a bit of an ass kicking against uh, Cater, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, he got a good chin. Good boxing and effective jab. He's very sharp striker. He's got a nice, good technical striking. You know, just the way he carries himself in the octagon. Good shoulder movement. Good head movement. Good, nice jab. Works behind the jab. You could tell he works a lot in the boxing skills. It's there. As a guy who's got a wrestling background, I'm even more impressed. His boxing skills are on point. His wrestling. He has wrestling in his background. Again, former state champion himself. When he's on the ground, he shows good wrestling skills. He's not an offensive wrestler per se, but his defensive wrestling is pretty good. He can reverse position. He can get back to his feet. Now, what, what are the concerns for him? The obvious ones, the cold streak. He's one and four in his last five fights. He started his UFC career going six and one. Now he's like poof, hit a wall. All of a sudden now losing fight after fight. The career damage. I'm being analytical here with this, but he got clipped. Like when, when, when him and Cater fought, it was, it was a beating. Okay. The kind of beating where maybe it changes you, like it changes your timing, changes your speed. Um, and so even when he fought Emmett, Emmett was able to pick him apart a little bit. It's almost as if the beating from Cater was was permanent. And so I'm wondering about his career damage, the last few fights he's fought. And is that starting to add up? Is the scar tissue there? Is going to cut you know easier now? So just some general concerns. Lots of decisions. Seven of his last eight fights have gone to decision. He lacks finishing ability and he depends on the judges. Yeah, not, not the kind of stuff you want to hear when you're trying to put money behind a fighter. I know. Even though I'm telling you I'm going to be betting on this guy, I'm just giving you the obvious. Takedown defense. 42% takedown defense is not going to cut it either. In this matchup against Damon Jackson, who likes to take the fight to the ground, should I'm saying? It could be a problem. And last but not least, like I said before, the facial damage, the, the scar tissue. He's been cut several times in his last few fights. And against Cater, he just got... He got shredded. And so this adds up over time. You know, like Nate Diaz, it's always a pleasure to watching him fight, but if someone just blows on him, he cuts. So I'm wondering about Dan Ige. Does he cut fast in this fight? Will that be a factor in the scorecards? You know, if it's a close fight, judge gives Damon Jackson around because of the blood, you know, that kind of thing. 
As for Mr. Jackson, orthodox fighter, so he's right-handed against a right-handed Dan Ige. So both guys are right-handed. For Damon Jackson, averages about nine minutes per fight, so just about two rounds total per fight. He has 35 total mixed martial arts bouts under his belt. Lands about 2.65 strikes per minute, absorbs 2.83. Not an amazing striking output or, or good ratio, but if you know the way Damon Jackson fights, it makes sense. He's on the ground. He's trying to submit you, trying to grapple you. That's where he does his operation. Takedown offense for Damon Jackson, 2.62 takedowns per 15 minutes. With a 42% takedown defense, though I would advocate that Damon Jackson doesn't give a damn about takedown defense for him. You want to go to the ground, he'll pull guard, let's go down there. That's where he operates. So takedown defense is not a number he cares about. But that 2.62 takedowns per 15 minutes against his opponent, who's only defending takedowns at a 51% rate, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but at some point, Damon Jackson probably gets to fight to the ground if he really wants to. For Mr. Jackson, he's from Oklahoma, began wrestling at a young age. He was runner-up at state championships in high school, which would have been in Oklahoma, and those guys are beasts down there. So I would say, like, a second place in Oklahoma is like a state title in most states, if you catch my drift. He wrestled at Missouri Valley College, where he was an All-American. He's a BJJ Purple Belt. He also won performance of the night twice in the UFC. He's former Legacy FC and LFA featherweight champion. And this will be his second stint now that he's currently on in the UFC. His last few opponents, he fought Pat Sabatini, my buddy here from Philadelphia. He won that fight round one KO, impressive fashion. He was a plus 170 underdog. He put a stop to the Sabatini train. Sabatini's been on a hot streak, looking good. And Sabatini just got his chin checked there and just couldn't recover in time. His prior fight, Daniel Argueta, last year, now, that fight, look, he was a minus 720 favorite, Damon Jackson was. He won by decision, and all he really did was pretty much get Argueta's back for three full rounds, and Argueta was just didn't have the fighter IQ to get him off his back or stop it from happening, and it was an easy win, a little bit boring, but, you know, the veteran showed his veteran savvy, got the win there. Prior fight, Kamuela Kirk, 2021, round two submission win as a minus 120 favorite. Nice win. That's where you see Damon Jackson at his best. He's going to get a backpack, wear on you, get a submission. That's what he wants to do. Prior fight, Charles Rose, a 2021 decision win as a minus 190 favorite. That's an impressive fight because if you know anything about Damon Jackson, he's got a tendency to get his chin checked. To go the full distance with Rosa, who's a bit of an animal himself, and get that win, that's quality. quality. Now, one more I'd like to talk about for his background. Movid Kobalayev, 2019, round one KO loss. Maybe, Maybe one, one of the most lethal flying knees you'll ever see. He loses that fight in, in just, just a, a few, few seconds, seconds of round one and literally crumbles to the ground. Damon Jackson, that is. He just goes from a standing person to like someone when they... The, the body disappears and the clothing falls to the ground, but his body was the clothing, if you catch my drift. And I would implore you to go back and watch that fight. I believe it's on the YouTube, so you can go to the Tuber and find that, but the links are out there and available. And yeah, that was a tough knockout. I don't believe that knockout is like, it doesn't reflect his entire career, put it that way. But I, it's an indicator of what we're going to talk more about here in a second about my concerns for his durability and for his chin. Now, what's it like about Damon Jackson? The hot streak. He's won four fights in a row. Veteran mentality, the fight against Argueta, he showed he's been fighting in UFC, LFA, PFL, Legacy. He's had two stints in the UFC. The guy's been around the block. He knows winning matters, how important it is. He ties up Argueta for three full rounds because a boring win does the job. He knows what it takes to win fights. His submission offense, he has 14 submission wins out of 22 career victories. In other words, 64% of the time when he's winning, it's by submission. High finish rate, 17 finishes out of 22 total career wins. That's 77% of the time he's going to finish the fight. So for him, the Argueta win, yeah, by decision, okay. But most of the time, his fights are not going to the full distance. He's the kind of guy who's looking to get a finish of some kind. He also sticks to his game plan. 
again, back to the Argueta fight, a boring fight. He's not going to get out of his game plan. Not, he's not going to get out of his what he does. He's going to stick to what he does well. For example, stay on the feet for three rounds and fight on the feet and striking. That's not what he does. He won't, he won't fall into that trap. He will stick to what he's good at, which is a game plan on the ground and grappling. Now, what are my concerns for Damon Jackson? Inexperienced opponents. He has looked dominant in his last two fights, but those opponents are now are, are both new to the UFC. So, for example, Argueta, that's a brand new guy to the UFC. So, yeah, he dominated him on the back, back control, but it wasn't really a test. Against Sabatini, a guy who's kind of on fire, but still new to the UFC, very one-dimensional, has to grapple, and he clips Sabatini with a simple little punch, and we see Sabatini may not have a chin. So those wins, they're nice on paper, but the reality is we really haven't seen him beating guys that are you know quality level. Damon Jackson's also a very limited striker in terms of what he can do with the striking. So he does have limited output, and then the power is also not there as well. The Sabatini knockout is going to throw so many people off. They're going to look at the tapology and say, oh, you knocked out Sabatini round one. Go back and watch it. I, God bless Sabatini. He's a local fighter here. I've met him a few times. Very nice young man. But, you know, that we'll see. We'll see if the chin checks out later on. Sabatini in that moment looked like he may have gotten chin checked a little bit too easy for my liking. The negative striking ratio, we talked about that before. But the biggest concern for Damon Jackson is the durability. He's been finished in all four of his career defeats. Okay. One via submission. So that's the submission win, loss. But three times via KO. And though he defeated Argueta last year, we've talked about that fight a few times, where he dominates. And on paper, it's like there's a win there by decision, unanimous, no ifs, ands, or buts. I would implore you to look at round three, where in round three, Argueta lands a very simple punch. It's not a punch where Argueta's really winding up much for. They're engaged a little bit on the feet. Um, not engaged, meaning like holding each other, but like they're, they're, they're trading some punches. And you see Argueta lands a very simple punch, and it wobbles. Damon Jackson, and you see it seriously wobbles him. My thinking is in this fight is that what's going to happen is maybe we get through round one, we get to round two. At some point, Ige is going to find the chin of Damon Jackson and put him down. I think that's how he wins the fight. So a few more notes here in this fight to talk about. I um, I think the props to look at, the props to consider, the fight does not go the distance. Look at that one because you know what? Both guys have one, one has submission ability. And one has maybe not KO ability, but has a path to maybe touching the chin of Damon Jackson. So the fight, not going the distance is a prop I like. I like Ige by KO. And if you're going to take a sprinkle on something, look at Damon Jackson by submission. I like Ige on the money line, though. At minus 125, he's a player that I'm going to be putting somewhere on my list of tickets. I like Damon Jackson. I think his recent run has kind of jaded people a little bit, and so they're on him maybe a little bit too high. And again, beating guys are not as experienced. For Ige, he's on the flip side of that. He's been fighting some pretty good dudes. Coming up short, yes, but he's been fighting some much better competition. I think Ige comes in here and looks sharper on the feet, lands the quality punches, Test the chin of Damon. Test, test, excuse me, the chin of Damon Jackson and gets the win here by KO within the first two rounds. That's your prediction, guys. Let's move on. This brings us to the main event, guys. 185 pound fight, middleweight division between the American Kelvin Gaslam versus Nasruddin Imovov from France via Russia. We'll talk about his background here shortly. For those who need to skip ahead, let me get right to the winning method and the winning fighter. We like Imovov to win the fight by decision. Five-round fight, yes. Imovov's got some cardio issues. We'll talk about that. Kelvin Gaslam's fought the better competition. We'll talk about that, too. But our prediction is going to be Nasruddin Imovov to win this fight by decision. 
Okay, after these two fighters, look at the details. For Mr. Kelvin Gaslam, 17-8 overall, 1-4 in his last five fights out of Yuma, Arizona. Slight dog here at plus 170, 31 years young. 5'9", height with a 71.5-inch reach, and he trains out of Yuma United Mixed Martial Arts. As for the Russian sniper, Mr. Imovov, 12-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. Now based out of France, and he's now, he has French nationality. That's right. We'll talk about that and his background. He's a minus 210 to minus 205 favorite, about to be 27 years old. 6'3", high with a 75-inch reach, and he trains out of MMA Factory. So there's going to be a significant four or five inch reach at um, height, height advantage, excuse me, for Imavov over Kevin Ga- Kelvin Gaslam, which Kelvin is used to. He usually is the shortest fighter. And about a four inch or three and a half inch reach advantage there as well for Imavov. Looking at the other numbers in these two fighters, let's talk here first about Mr. Imavov. His fights in the UFC have averaged about 12 and a half minutes. He lands about four strikes per minute, absorbs 2.43 per minute. So not the highest volume, but good ratio. And he averages about one takedown per 15 minutes with 76% takedown defense. He's from Dagestan, Russia. So here we go. He's not really from France, even though he's got French uh, nationality. He lives there now. He was actually born in Dagestan. When he was very young, his family moved to, to France. He began boxing at the age of nine years old. He started mixed martial arts at the age of 19. He started his MMA career in 2016 with no amateur experience. He made his UFC debut in 2020 versus Jordan Williams. He's the former TFL welterweight champion. And he has no listed belts for like any kind of you know accomplishments. So I looked up his stuff. Like I don't see anything for judo or or just anything. So I'm not really sure what his grade of belt would be like in jiu-jitsu or, or any kind of other martial arts discipline. His last few opponents, he fought Joaquin Buckley last year, won the fight by decision as a minus 270 favorite. He fought Edmund Shabazian prior fight before that, 2021 round two TKO win as a minus 120 favorite. He beat Ian Heinish, 2021 round two TKO win as a plus 135 underdog. And then he also beat Phil Hawes, 2020, by decision as a plus 100 dog. So if you were betting on my man Imovov, his last four fights, man, that's minus 120, plus 135, plus 100, minus 270, and he was getting the job done every one of those fights. So if you're betting on him recently, he's done well. And then one more fight was his UFC debut against Jordan Williams, where he won that fight by decision, 2020, as a minus 135 favorite. So yes, very good return on him if you've been betting on him recently. Now, what's the like about Imovov? Excellent footwork. He moves in and out of range. He can move... Left to right, in and out. Um, his cardio is the question mark we'll talk about. But when his cardio is up to speed and he's okay, he, he's got great feet, good footwork, good kicking game. So don't think about like Dagestan, Russian, like oh, wrestling kind of guy. No, I mean, this guy's a striker. He's got almost like a karate side stance, nice kicks, body kicks, head kicks. He uh, he mixes it up, kicking the legs, kick everywhere. He displayed a solid chin against Buckley. So in that fight, he, he ends up bullying Buckley, like backing him up, tagging him. But he does get hit a few times himself. And you see him take the punches pretty well. Like he almost gets like wobbled. Like he almost gets like knee buckled, but takes it pretty well, keeps going. And ultimately, he's the one who's pushing the pace and pressure. And he basically ends up bullying Buckley and gets the win there. High winning percentage. So four and one winning record in the UFC. That's impressive. 80% winning percentage for his entire career. career. So the guy's a winner. He's a balanced fighter. He could do his work on the ground. Again, from Dagestan. So in the loins, in the jeans, right? But on the feet, man, he's got, got a very, very good skill set. Finishing ability. Five of his last seven wins have been by finish. So he's got good finish rate recently. He's also very durable. The one time that he was ever finished was by submission. And it was his pro debut seven years ago. He also likes to switch stances, which is interesting. Like he predominantly will be a right-handed fighter, but he'll go to the southpaw stance. He'll mix it back and forth. That lends to tell you how confident he is in his striking game. He'll also chase a few chokes every now and then. If his opponent will expose his neck, he will chase some submissions. You know, so it's in his arsenal. Put, put it that way. way. Again, a very balanced fighter. He's got abilities on the ground, also abilities on the feet. 
What are my concerns for Imovov? The quality of competition. His UFC opponents have been decent, but not amazing. So it's one of those issues where it's like he's getting these wins, but it's against guys who it's like, oh, yeah, it's Buckley. It's, you know, it's, it's guys like that. And we haven't seen him win against an opponent where it's like that's a bona fide quality win. So he's still looking for that. His hands are a bit low. We talk about this karate style. It's like his hands are low for two reasons. One, it's like his posture, just the way it works. And two, it's almost like a bit of cockiness, a bit of brash. And it's like over time, it's, you know, it's not a good way to fight. So he's open to getting countered. He's open to just a simple jab. He also may be a little overconfident in his chin. That lends to why the hands are so low. He hasn't really been clocked. He hasn't been rocked, hasn't been knocked out really. He's been, oh, he, he got rocked a little bit by Buckley, but he hasn't been knocked out. These younger fighters who have never been knocked out tend to be a little overconfident in that category, and I think that might be applying to him as well. His cardio is the biggest of all the concerns. He looked extremely fatigued and sloppy in some of the late rounds of his recent fights. That could cost him against a better opponent. In this fight here against Kelvin Gaslam, a guy who's been five rounds, who's been to longer distance fights before, doesn't have the best cardio himself, but still has been there. And for Imovov, could we see him hit round four and five and just be like ineffective and too tired to do something? It's possible. His lead leg is wide open for attacks. He's got that side stance, like a, whatever, like Stephen Thompson, that karate stance. So his front leg is wide open. It could be there for Kelvin Gaston, who likes to throw lower leg kicks to possibly attack that front leg. And then last thing about Imovov, which I noticed, is that he's a bit of a bleeder. You know, he doesn't have to get hit very much to start getting cut and, you know, just start bleeding a lot. So, you know, in close fights, a um, five-round fight where a round can make the difference, you know, you're bleeding, the other guy's not bleeding, it, it could be a factor. As for Kelvin Gaslam, most people who've been following UFC for the last, you know, four or five years, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know who Kelvin Gaslam is. His moment was a few years ago against the one and only um, Israel Adesanya, where he pulled that moment off of, like, he didn't win, but he did so damn good. And so it's like he's living off of that experience. Or not, I'm sorry, that's the wrong way of saying it. People are recognizing that experience and still talking about that as like, if he could just do that again, if he could, you know, meet that potential. And so here we are years later, many fights removed. He's on a rough streak and just has not been able to sort of like turn it up and meet that potential. Excuse me for a second. This might be a good time for you if, as well. If you have a beverage on hand, if you're driving, pick up your coffee, take a sip or whatever you're driving with, which should not be an alcohol beverage. But if you're at home at a library where we're at, I'm taking a sip of my wine. So just give me one second here. All right, so Mr. Gaslam, American fighter. He's actually a Mexican-American descent, and he's a southpaw. He is a boxer by trait. So even though he's got a wrestling background, he fights like a boxer. He's on the feet. He wants to strike with you. That's his, his style. His average fight time is 13 and a half minutes. He lands 3.53 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.24. You know, I look at that, those numbers, and I'm like, I'm surprised. I would have thought he would have had more of a positive ratio. The thing with Kelvin Gaslam is that the fact that it's positive at all is super impressive. He's fought some good competition. When you share the octagon, you know, four or five rounds with guys like Israel Asanya, and you still have decent numbers, numbers, you know, that tells you at least he's not getting hit too much. But it's not a high volume, put it that way. Takedown offense, averaging one takedown per fight with 62% takedown defense. Okay, numbers, numbers there. there. His background, he's born in Southern California. His family is from Mexico. He's the former state wrestling champion. Also wrestled in junior college. He's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He won the Ultimate Fighter in 2017, was that? Or season 17. Point is, he won the Ultimate Fighter. <laughs> he's earned Fight of the Night or Performance of the Night seven times in the UFC. That is impressive. Wow. That must have been some of the, Again, here's a guy who's earned Performance of the Night or Fight of the Night like a handful of times while also losing the fights. But... 
you know, on the cusp of like doing something great. His last four opponents, he fought Jerry Cannonier two years ago, lost by decision, which also is interesting. He did not fight at all in 2022. That kind of surprised me. I'm like, wow, Kevin Gaston didn't fight at all last year? He didn't. Also, 2021, he fought Robert Whitaker, lost that fight by decision as a five-round fight as a plus-230 underdog. He won against Ian Heinish, 2021, and then 2020, he got heel-hooked in round one by Jack Hermanson, the only time he's ever been finished. And quite frankly, I'm not trying to you know, rank on Jack Hermanson, but these heel hooks can be a little corny sometimes. And in that case, it's like, it sucks. The fight ended in round one because of a heel hook uh, is what it is. Now, what's the like about Mr. Kelvin Gaslam? Championship level opponents. He's been in the octagon with guys like Israel Asanya and he's held his own. Didn't get it finished. Went the full distance, had his moments. I mean, he put at least, I would say, put at least uh, Israel on skates. I wouldn't say he like hurt him a lot. But he put him on skates. His chin is there. He's very durable. He's never been knocked out. Now, he got finished again by the heel hook, but never been knocked out. And the punching power, that might be the hardest thing to figure out here with Kelvin Gaslam. Like, we know he's got some punching power. We, like, yeah, he put Israel Adesanya on skates. But, like, how much punching power? It's one of those areas where we just can't figure it out. What are my concerns for Kelvin Gaslam? Fighter IQ against Jack Hermanson. He gets heel hooked, right? He, his heel was almost heel hooked a minute not even like 20 seconds before that <laughs> and he like, kept messing around this guy was on his back like just disengage force him to stand up it was a low fight iq moment it cost him the fight you know uh pressure to win wow that's a, that's a category you can't really how do you quantify the pressure that fighters feel to win um how do you measure that i mean you you you, you can't right you can't really quantify that he is one in four in his last five fights kelvin gaslam the pressure is on Here's a guy who's gone from being a person who people bona fide going to be a contender. Uh, we got something. We got something here in this guy. He's former, you know, Ultimate Fighter. Uh, the UFC loves those kind of guys. They want those kind of guys to win belts and stuff like that. And and he goes out there, puts an amazing performance on against Adesanya, and then since then has just couldn't put it together. Um, so the pressure, the pressure's on him, right, to perform. We like Nasruddin to win the fight by decision. The one caveat is if he cannot perform in round four or five in a close fight, you know, even if he wins the first three rounds, man, but he has a really bad performance in round four or five, it can cost him. And that's all going to be based upon cardio. The props that we like the most for this fight, the fight going over two and a half rounds, the fight starts round three, and then Imabov again by decision. If you like Kelvin, right, consider this, Kelvin by knockout. You know, I, I mean, he's got the he's got some potential, and if Imavov gets tired, that's a play you might want to consider. But we're going to focus on the over two and a half rounds. The fight starts round three, Imavov by decision. That's your breakdown for the main event, guys. Good luck with this. All right, boys and girls, this brings us to the end of the show. I'm going to give a quick review here, a summary of our picks. But before I get to that, I want to implore you, please, to like and subscribe. If you haven't done so already, like, subscribe, support our content. If you're not following us on Twitter, please do so. All the handles and all that information, Instagram is all down below, along with our link to uh, the Google Drive where you can find the notes for our fights in like a raw format in Word document for those who just want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, but I'll go over the, each fight one fight at a time just real quickly, give you the fight and the method of victory. Starting in the beginning here, we like Eubanks by decision. Then we like Charles Johnson into the distance. We like Isaac Dolgarian to win into the distance. Alan Asimento to win by decision. We're going to go with Javid Bashrat by decision, but man, we do like Mendoza as a possible to the distance prop. Next fight, we're going to go with Rubeski to win inside the distance. We're going to take Azza, we're going to take, excuse me, Abdul Razak Al Hassan to win by KO. 
Umar Nurmagomedov to win by submission. We're going to go with Raquel Pennington to win by decision. Roman Kopilov to win by decision. Dan Ike to win by KO. And then Nasreen Imovov to win by decision. Those are your picks. Thank you guys once again for joining us. I know we've been off the air for a while. I'm excited to tell you guys about all the new additions that we have coming, but we've been in the lab working pretty hard the last few months. And as the next few weeks come out, we'll be rolling out some new things. I'll be excited to tell you about those, but thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your support and your patience. Like, subscribe, uh, follow us on Twitter if you're not doing that already, and also on Instagram. We put a lot of content out there absolutely for free, 100%. But thank you guys for being here. Again, like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.